1: and since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On July 27, 2008, during a supervised visitation with a social worker, the man everyone knew was Clark Rockefeller supposedly a descendant of the wealthy Rockefeller family, ditched the social worker and sped off with his seven-year-old daughter, Ray, known as Snooks. He'd kidnapped her. Full custody of Snooks had recently been awarded to Clark's ex-wife, Sandra Boss, after a contentious divorce during the winter of 2007, 2008. Her abduction would set off a manhunt involving the FBI that would culminate nearly a week later, on August 2nd, 2002, when Clark was found in Baltimore, Maryland, where he'd recently purchased an apartment for about $450,000, under the name Charles Chip Smith. He was now claiming to be a ship captain, relocating from Chile with his daughter, and he was a single father. Obviously, this wasn't the case. Yet another lie from a man whose entire life had been alive for the past two decades. Snook's mother desperately wanted her back, even posting a YouTube video where she begged Clark to please return her. Luckily, her daughter would be found very quickly, although I'm sure those six days felt like an eternity to Sandra. And then Sandra and everyone else who knew Clark, or at least thought they knew him, would be in for more shocking surprises. During the short course of their investigation, the FBI had just enough time to come across something very unusual for what at first seemed to be a normal parental kidnapping case. Clark had no social security number, no driver's license. He didn't seem to have any kind of identification of any kind that proved he was who he said he was. So who the hell was this man? Everyone in Clark's social circle had previously thought that this was a relatively easy question to answer. He was, of course, Clark Rockefeller. The Clark Rockefeller, an eccentric and respected member of a wealthy family, an American blue-blood family of sorts who had descended from John D. Rockefeller, the famed industrialist. Sure, people knew that Clark was odd. He regularly thought people were following him and had a collection of millions of dollars worth of art that he seemed to treat like trash. But of course, he acted strangely. Old money, you know. Generations of wealth seems to increase one's odds of becoming a little peculiar. You have a little more time to become a little more peculiar than the average person when you're born into a lot of money. But Clark Rockefeller was not born into a lot of money or old money. He wasn't born into any money. Clark Rockefeller was not a Rockefeller. He was a Gerhard Strider. He was born Christian Karl Gerhard Strider in 1961 to a working class German family. Christian found his way to the U.S. in the late 1970s, quickly started taking the qualities of the upper class elites he so desperately wanted to become someday, putting on a posh transatlantic accent. He quickly made his way to San Marino, California, a wealthy suburb of L.A. where he now claimed to be Christopher Chichester, royalty from England with German noble ties. For fans of the Netflix series Inventing Anna that trended so hard this past winter and spring, this dude was the O.G. Anna Delvey, O.G. Anna Sorokin. Watching interviews of these two, their uh, psychological profiles seemed remarkably similar. It's like they just don't understand on any level why anyone has made a big deal of them tricking literally everyone around them into thinking that they're somebody they're not. They act like it's not a big deal to use a fake identity, to manipulate, and in some cases essentially steal from those around them. They don't see what they're uh, doing as stealing. They don't see what they've done as all that bad. They just refuse to accept seemingly literally everyone else's assessment of them as who they actually are because they're con artists to the bone. Despite being currently the lesser known of the two bullshit artists, Clark was a way more successful phony than Anna ever was. He pulled his long cons off better and more convincingly, more successfully. Anna Sorokin, uh, if you didn't watch the Netflix show, is a Russian-born and raised con artist who claimed to be German, and she did move there when she was 16, who in 2017 was arrested for defrauding or intentionally deceiving major financial institutions, banks, hotels, and acquaintances in the U.S. for a total of $275,000. She tried to get tens of millions. She made people smart, well-connected, wealthy, educated people, people who wouldn't be so successful if they were uh, overall terrible judges of character, truly believe she was the wealthy daughter of a German industrial titan and was set to inherit tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions, of vast fortune. Nope. In reality, she was the pathologically lying and manipulative daughter of a truck driver and a convenience store owner. She wasn't set to inherit jack shit. Anna used her fake backstory and charm to con her way into New York City's most elite socialite circles. She made multiple millionaires think she was one of them. She almost got away with getting a loan for over $20 million based on nothing but a web of lies. And Anna pulled off her bullshit for about six years. Clark Rockefeller pulled off his for about 20. And when he was finally caught and his house of cards came tumbling down, his unraveling story was revealed to be, I think, a lot juicier and seedier than Anna's. The son and daughter-in-law of a San Marino woman whose guest house Christian was staying in, going by Christopher Chichester at the time, uh, mysteriously disappeared in 1985. And and Christian followed and went missing as well, turning up with the missing man's truck a short time later. A missing man who would turn out to have been murdered. For the next 17 years, Christian would first live as Christopher Crow, then as Clark Rockefeller, then very briefly as Chip Smith. The Rockefeller alias was by far his most successful fake endeavor. As Clark, he'd meet and marry a Harvard business school graduate named Sandra Boss, who made a lot of money, real money, fake Clark was all too happy to spend to make people think he was someone he was not. The couple would have a daughter whom Clark did seem to actually adore. The role of loving father may have been the most authentic one he ever played. When Clark's marriage fell apart and his daughter was taken to England by her mother, Christian, aka Christopher, aka Clark, who'd signed away almost all of his parental rights for an $800,000 payoff, suddenly found himself in a real tough spot. He couldn't just walk away from another life and start a new one again. Well, he technically could, but he really didn't want to. Not unless his daughter was a part of that new life. He actually truly cared about someone other than himself, maybe for the first time. And this weakness brought him down when he decided to kidnap her. And then he was arrested for kidnapping. And then the real truth about Clark Rockefeller came out, fake identities, alleged murders and all. And you're about to hear it. The strange story of Clark Rockefeller today on a would living the life you've always dreamt of be worth it If you had to live a lie to have it, true crime edition of Time Suck.
0: This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck.
1: Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the cult, of the curious. Get in here. Uh, Welcome back. If you've been here before. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, the Suck Master, guy who hasn't looked at socks the same way since last week. And you were listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. couple quick announcements and then show. Hoping I had a blast at the wet, hot, bad magic summer camp over a week ago now. Recorded this in advance. The next one will be recorded before the camp as well. And then I'll, I'll let everybody know how, uh, how much fun it was. Hopefully. Uh, still excited about upcoming tour dates? Huntsville, Alabama, Thursday, September 8th, Nashville, September 9th and 10th, uh, right between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and Florida, September 23rd and 24th, Palm Beach on the 25th, Boston, October 6th, seven, and 8th, Grand Rapids, Michigan area, October 21, 22, and 23rd, then it's Austin, Louisville, Portland, finishing the fallout in Minneapolis at the Parkway Theater for a few prep shows, and then a special taping, the weekend of December 9th and 10th. Links to tickets and more info at dancummins.tv. And we'll be announcing a bunch of uh, 2023 theater dates here soon. Uh, got a few new merch items in the store this week. Crikey! Got a ripper of a new tee in the Bad Magic store this week. Featuring me, Steve Owen. Authentic Australian accent guy. Looking pretty good if I do say so myself. Smiling because I, I finished a terrifying wrestle with one of my favorite crocs, Lucy. What a beauty. Ripper. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com today. Pick up a new Crikey tea. God, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I probably should, I probably should win some awards for the most convincing Australian accent of all time. And i just like to say that because I know it's not actually that great. <laughs> and it makes some people so irrationally angry. Uh, also, check out the new Skinwalker Ranch Tea and Hoodie inspired by Suck 205 where we cover the infamous paranormal hotbed in northeastern Utah just because it looks cool as fuck. So much good shit. badmagicmerch.com. Logan has a lot of good stuff in the pipeline. And before I go forward uh, with one more announcement in the show, uh, accent wise, it's become my new favorite thing to do <laughs> to torture the kids uh, is to uh, do horrible accents. Like we were uh, we were in, in Boston a while back, and I don't. Remember, oh yeah, we went out there. Yeah, we saw uh, Lake Street Dive. I was like, Why are we in Boston after the tour? <laughs> and I was doing at a Dunkin' Donuts. I ordered as a Boston character that was so bad in front of Boston, obviously Boston people, and the family was humiliated. Which, um, <laughs> like, Lindsay, I think, was actually a little angry. And the kids were just so, they're just a fun age right now, too embarrassed. But I had this stupid Boston character was, uh, yeah, yeah, just get a, uh, I don't know, maybe a chocolate, uh, chocolate eclair. Uh, you know, the kind of stuff I had is back in the South Bay when I was uh, growing up here in Boston, uh, back when I was friends with Jimmy Anderson. uh man, Jimmy Anderson, he took a bat to your bean if you, uh, if you stepped out of line. I don't even know what fucking accent that is, but uh, no one was amused other than me, which made it very funny for me. And then um, when when we were flying back from that trip, Kyler sat next to somebody on the plane behind me to somebody actually from Boston who had an accent. And I got up at the end of the flight and I was like, hey, did you tell your your friend there? Yeah. Yeah. Father's from Boston, from Boston Harbor, South Bay. And he looked like he just wanted to melt through the seat and just out, like exit the plane somehow, like just go, by going underneath it. Uh, and then uh, on this last vacation, when we were <laughs> in, in in England, I would um, start talking in a in a British accent, which is also not good. And the the kids and Lindsay would literally like just not quite run, but they would just move away from me as fast as public and just pretend they didn't know me. So that's my new favorite thing to do. That's my new favorite way to terrorize my family. Um, Okay, last quick uh, uh, thing here, charity. Uh, This month's charity donation went to Camp Easton, a Boy Scout camp here in CDA. Camp Easton's where we uh, hosted our wet, hot, bad magic summer camp. and we donated $15,400 thanks to our space lizards and Annabelles and Roberts over on Scared to Death, and uh, also put $2,000 into the upcoming uh, scholarship fund. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And now for a topic that uh, sends us uh, all the way back to a pretty recent time, actually. Uh, Me and Jimmy Anderson used to talk about this in South Bay. I won't do that the whole show. I don't think. Uh, No, but it is pretty recent, at least compared to most of our topics. Uh, Though the man who would come to be known as Clark Rockefeller began conning his way through the U.S. back in the late 70s, wasn't until after his capture in 2008 that his story burst onto the national scene. Probably the vast majority of us remember the summer of 2008, if you're old enough. Uh, He was apprehended that July, even if we don't remember Clark Rockefeller making any headlines. There was a lot of other shit holding our collective attention back then. Uh, May of 2008, Iron Man was released by Marvel Studios, the first film taking place in the ridiculously successful Marvel Cinematic Universe. My God. That universe has made a stupid amount of money in a very short amount of time. As of May 16th, this May 16th, the MCU movies collectively have grossed over $25 billion at the box office alone. Not counting merch, DVD sales, streaming revenue, downloads, name and likeness, licensing, et cetera. Et cetera just box office money. That also doesn't count the new Thor movie, uh, Love and Thunder, uh, that as of putting these notes together back on August 5th had grossed another $669 million and counting against a $250 million budget. I'm sure that well over half of the roughly $26 billion haul, uh, uh, you know, box office haul the MC Universe has made is profit, right? Despite whatever their highly paid and creative accountants might claim. That's a lot of people living in comic book mansions from that uh, universe. Also in 2008, California became the second state after Massachusetts, ah, my own home home state with me me and Jimmy Anderson used to hang out, uh, to legalize same-sex marriage on May 15th, and that made big headlines. Over the same summer, Barack Obama uh, getting a lot of press while campaigning to become the 44th president of the U.S., and then there were the Olympic Games in Beijing that August, uh, back when a, a shit ton of people actually watched the Olympics. The 2008 Beijing Olympic Games attracted the largest global TV audience ever. Between August 8th and August 24th, 4.7 billion viewers, over 70% of the world's population, tuned in to watch the games, according to uh, Nielsen. The opening ceremony is still the 12th most watched single program of any kind uh, of TV event in history. Almost 600 people tuned in to watch that live. That's a fucking gigantic number. And Clark was arrested in August the week before. Also true crime-wise, his case was overshadowed by old poopo hole loophole. June 4th, 2008, former Suck subject Jody Arias would stab her ex-boyfriend Travis Alexander multiple times before shooting him in the forehead, began an investigation, and later a soap opera-like trial full of all kinds of graphic sexual details that would captivate our puritanical sexually repressed nation here in the States. So what I'm saying is, if you missed this story, you were in the majority. Uh, good news for Time Suck is now this story, despite being covered by a few other podcasts, uh, probably gonna be real fresh. And what an interesting story this one is to hear for the first time. And even if you had heard it before, I'm guessing my take would be a little little bit different. Uh, I'm guessing Jimmy Anderson uh, didn't show up in any of the other podcasts. So let's fucking hear it, you beautiful bastards. Uh, To tell this intriguing tale, first I'm going to lay out who the Rockefellers were. Uh, Picking this name, I got to say, great move. Uh, For the persona Christian crafted and the social circle he wanted to successfully infiltrate and then did infiltrate... Can't think of a better name, like any better name. Rockefeller got him a lot of mileage. It holds so much mystique and social value for some, you know. I don't give a fuck if your last name is Rockefeller or Dingle Dangle. Actually, Dingle Dangle would probably be preferable. If your last name was actually Dingle Dangle, I'm guessing you have a kick-ass sense of humor, right? You've been teased a lot and you had to get through that. And we're probably going to get along just fine. Uh, next, uh, we will look into con artist psychology. How and why do we fall for the bullshit of the Christian Karl Gerhardt Striders of the world? Finally, it'll be timeline time beginning with Christian's birth, ending with the state of his life today after his lies finally caught up with him. There is some justice at the end of this tale, which is fun. Uh, so Rockefeller, what is in a name? So much with this one. Approximately 2,000 people in the U.S. have the last name Rockefeller, which means a dweller in or near the rye field from the Dutch language from which it is thought to originate. So as far as literal meaning goes, I don't think it carries a lot of social weight. Pretty sure no one gives a single fuck how close you live to a rye field or not currently. Be funny if they did though, right? Just what? Are you for real? You live in or near a rye field? Oh, shit. Never met someone so high class before. Big money. Oh, man, you like a fucking king or some shit? You got those rye dollars, dog. Those those bread bills, yo. That dough money, son. Uh, The name carries weight, especially on the eastern seaboard of America, where most of our old money is due to its association with one particular uh, Rockefeller family. So who are these Rockefellers? The real ones that make this name uh, so important. Uh, Despite the name originally being Dutch, genealogists have suggested that the American Rockefeller line likely traces back to some little-known but probably well-off French Huguenots who had fled to Germany in the 16th century. These Huguenots were a group of Protestants who held to Calvinist beliefs and defied the Catholic Church's religious stranglehold on France during the Protestant Reformation. These Rockefellers likely were originally the uh, French uh, Rockefeller, Rockefeller family, a family that uh, took its name from the Chateau of Rockefeller in the mountains of Cressus in Southeast France. And I'm probably butchering these French names, by the way. Only videos these words uh, show up in online that I was able to find uh, are videos entirely in French, which was not helpful for me. Code of Arms was granted to Raymond de Roquefueil uh, way back in 1250. These Roquefueils made large fortunes from their vineyards in this area of France. For centuries, they enjoyed being wealthy minor nobles. Old money plus European aristocracy. Illuminati confirmed. Uh Clearly at least according to conspiratorial maniacs. Or these Rockefellers were people who may not have fed on adrenochrome, might not have been part of some reptilian conspiracy, but instead were just, you know, wealthy landowners, minor nobles, who probably held a distaste for riffraff. Anyway, this family enjoyed their comfortable social position until the middle of the 16th century, when they were driven from France as a result of, again, the religious upheaval at the time. They decided to worship their notion of God in a little different way than most of their neighbors and were punished for it, almost killed for it. What an age-old story. How many people in the world would love to punish or kill others for not worshiping their God their way right now? Ah, scary. Hundreds of millions? Over a billion? Uh, Some of these Rockefuels did seek refuge in Holland. Uh, Most fled to Germany. They fled in order to not be executed in France for being heretics. Uh, The first in the German line of this family that we know of by name, or at least out of the sources we could access, it seems to be the sources say this is the first we know, Uh, Goddard Rockenfeller. Born in the Rhineland, 1590. His grandson Johann Peter Rockefeller was the first in the family to set off for America. They dropped that end for some reason. Doing so in the early 1700s, settled in Arnwell Township, New Jersey, 1723. So we got a German immigrant, just like Christian Gerhard Strider, aka Clark Rockefeller, would later be. Practically the same person. Right? Makes sense. He swiped the name. Of course, not the same. Uh, The real story of the name Rockefeller being a power name in America and also elsewhere around the world uh, won't start for about a century and a half from this first guy showing up. Starts with the success of John David Rockefeller, known as John D. Rockefeller, in the latter half of the 19th century. He was an outrageously successful industrialist, the founder of the Standard Oil Company, which for many years dominated the massive American oil industry. Standard Oil Company is the reason anti-monopoly laws were created in the US. We just referenced Standard Oil Company last week. When um, Randy Kraft's dad worked for them for a while, brought the family out to California. Uh, this Rockefeller is widely considered the wealthiest American of all time. The Smithsonian and many other esteemed organizations have called him the wealthiest man to ever live. And that is saying something. In his prime, if uh, John D. couldn't afford something, literally no one could. Rockefeller's estimated 1.4 billion net worth in 1937 when he died was equivalent to 1.5% of the entire U.S. gross domestic product. According to this metric, he was and still is the wealthiest individual in American business and economic history. For now, Elon Musk might pass him. He came damn close this past year. Musk and his $273 billion net worth, as in my research before recording, uh, the sum fluctuates wildly, sometimes from uh, day to day. That figure just under 1.2% of the U.S. GDP, at least the 2021 GDP of $23 trillion. Anyway, when comparing one's wealth to the overall value of the economy as a whole, no American has ever been wealthier than John D. Rockefeller. He became America's first billionaire in 1916. For the last several decades of his life, when it came to wealth, there was John D. And then there was everyone else. He stood head and shoulders above America's other titans of industry when it came to having a Scrooge McDuck cartoonish amount of money. Uh, Was he also well-liked by the common man? No, no, he was not. Uh, No, he's pretty hated by the overall American public for the bulk of his life. I don't think he really cared about that, though. Uh, He was also respected, if begrudgingly, by almost everyone, including the bulk of his detractors. In many ways, John D. Rockefeller would uh, come to represent the epitome of the American dream, the belief that hard work, good business instincts, good timing uh, could make someone, anyone rich beyond their wildest dreams. Dude had a great attitude for work. He once told the writer William Inglis, it is remarkable how much we could all do if we avoid hustling and go along at an even pace and keep from attempting too much. That was not what I expected. Uh, By taking some downtime, the billionaire was able to pace himself and improve his productivity over many years. I really, I really like that approach idea. Not always been mine, that's for sure. Uh, He napped after lunch. He dozed in a lounge chair after dinner. In his mid-30s, he installed a telegraph wire between his work and home. That way, he could spend three or four afternoons during the week at home, gardening and enjoying the outdoors. Rockefeller planned his day like clockwork, and there was a mechanical regularity to his schedule. Each hour of his life was rigidly compartmentalized, tightly budgeted from work to religion to family, even exercise. I got a lot of respect for that as well. I have a hell of a time uh, doing that consistently. But man, whenever I give myself a solid schedule and actually take it seriously and respect it, I get the most shit done. Uh, John was also respected because he uh, came from nothing. Born on July 8th, 1839, John D. Rockefeller was the eldest son, second of six children born to traveling physician, snake oil salesman. And for what it sounds, just overall shithead, William Big Bill Avery Rockefeller, also known as Devil Bill Rockefeller. And Eliza Davison, Eliza Rockefeller, uh, you know, when he was born. Devil Bill would go missing for long periods of time during John D.'s childhood, leaving his family impoverished and forcing them to move from town to town. When he was a kid, John watched Papa Devil Bill count his money when he had it. Life sounds like it was roller coaster with Devil Bill. Uh, he would take huge wads of, uh, of dough, which he refused to keep in a bank and lovingly stack it in front of his impressionable son. John D. later recalled, he made a practice of never carrying less than $1,000 and he kept it in his pocket. He was able to take care of himself and was not afraid to carry his money. Sometimes Devil Bill took care of himself and his family. John Dee uh, sugarcoated his dad's uh, past a lot when he would speak about him. Other times this, this guy just bounced around and just took care of himself. Devil Bill's father, John's grandfather, Godfrey, was a successful farmer, as, as were several other generations of his family to various degrees, going back to times unknown in Europe, as I mentioned. Uh, breaking the cycle of Rockefeller money coming primarily from land ownership of some sort, plantation, farm, vineyard, etc seems to have been Devil Bill. Uh, Devil Bill's money came from a slew of shady business ventures, from pretending to be deaf and or blind as a peddler, uh, to posing as a doctor, to hawking herbal medicines that may or may not have been uh, that medicinal. Before his son, was John, uh, John D. was born, Devil Bill spent time as an itinerant con artist, maybe kind of fitting that Christian would later pick this name in some ways, uh, going from place to place, pretending to be deaf, soliciting free meals. Eliza, the daughter of one such target, became his wife and John's mother. What a fucking weird way to meet your father-in-law. Grifting, right? Especially that kind of grift. Uh, hello, uh, uh, Mr. Davison. I came to ask your permission to court your daughter, Eliza. We've met once before, if you recall. You gave me a free meal last week when I pretended to be deaf. I mean, when I was deaf, <laughs> excuse me. And you took pity on my plight. And I thank you again kindly for that. Happy to announce today that I am no longer deaf. Never was. I mean, I am, no, I am no longer deaf is what I should have stuck with. God blessed me with a miracle. Probably so I could hear the sweet songbird tones of your beautiful daughter's voice. And I've heard you're paying a handsome dowry to whoever takes her off your hands. That dowry detail is uh, true. Seems to uh, probably been a devil Bill's motivation at least a lot of it for Mary and Eliza. Devil Bill Rockefeller would continue peddling uh, quote-unquote medicines, running other scams for the rest of his life. And he had a long life, lived until the age of 95, sometimes under the pseudonym of William Levinson. When he died in 1906, that was the name on his tombstone. Maybe that snake oil actually worked. Dude uh, lived a long-ass time. Uh, John D.'s childhood was clearly unusual. Devil Bill uh, also would be indicted for rape in 1849 when John was just 10. The alleged victim was a young woman who worked in the Rockefeller household and she claimed Bill raped her at gunpoint. Following this heinous allegation, Bill, maybe he was uh, truly a devil, moved his family to Owego, New York, close to the Pennsylvania border in 1849. Uh, Young John was already a businessman by this time. He would later write about his first business venture that took place a few years before this move. When I was seven or eight years old, I engaged in my first business enterprise with the assistance of my mother. I owned some turkeys, and she presented me with the curds from the milk to feed them. I took care of the birds myself and sold them all in a business-like fashion. My receipts were all profits, so I had nothing to do with the expense account, and my receipts were kept as carefully as I knew how. In uh, Oswego, uh, New York, uh, John attended Oswego Academy. Uh, The family soon relocated to Strongsville, a town near Cleveland, Ohio, in 1853, where they stayed with Devil Bill Rockefeller's sister and brother-in-law. My father-in-law, Ed, and his wife, Patty, actually live uh, a few minutes from Strongville today. In 1855, Bill Rockefeller leaves his wife, Eliza. Sources aren't real clear why, but they would uh, not get divorced. Also, Devil Bill would still be involved in the parenting of the children. John Dee would later go to great lengths to use his wealth to hide embarrassing details of his father's life once he became incredibly successful. Journalists knew his dad was a con artist, uh, but they'd never be able to track him down before he died thanks to uh, his name change and thanks to John D.'s money. They'd never get all the dirty details he wanted, or if they did, John paid to keep those details out of print. We do know that Devil Bill married Margaret Allen, a woman 24 years his junior, after leaving John's mom, beginning a secret life as a bigamist, technically. Uh, Eliza, only three years younger than him, maybe uh, that was 21 years uh, too old. Under pressure from his father, John dropped out of Cleveland Central High School two months shy of commencement, then enrolled at Folsom Mercantile Center where he studied double-entry bookkeeping, penmanship, banking, and commercial law. On September 26, 1855, at 16, John gets his first true job working for Hewitt and Tuttle, commission merchants and produce shippers. He'll celebrate job day the rest of his life. Dude loved work. He reminisced later in life, all my future seemed to hinge on that day. And I often tremble when I ask myself the question, what if I had not got the job? We all have those moments, don't we? At least all of us old enough to have a lived enough life to have them. Moments you look back on and realize, holy shit, I had no idea or I have no idea where my life would be right now had that not happened. Uh, One of my biggest, if not the biggest, Probably meeting my ex-wife. Seriously, she encouraged me to get into stand-up. Stand-up later led to podcasting, to this podcast. Uh, we had two kids together who changed my life. Two awesome kids. I can't imagine not having kids who led me back to Idaho, where this podcast really got started or got going. Also, had I not, uh, you know, uh, gotten into stand-up, I would have never moved to L.A. for several years to work. Never met my life, uh, my wife and life, uh, Lindsay. My life would be wildly different had I not asked her out on a date you know, uh, the ex-wife over 20 years ago, had she not come to some rehearsal of some little band I was fucking around in playing college keggers. So strange, these moments, right? And there are so many of them moments where, you know, if your parents, uh, had decided not to move or move to a different place, or if you would have taken job a instead of job B, you know, your life has changed sometimes so drastically forever. Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangos, all our gods. What a strange little game they've, uh, set us up to play down here. The same year he got that first job, John D. starts keeping careful accounts of his finances in Ledger A, where he meticulously notes every receipt, expenditure, later every charitable donation. Wouldn't be long before that kind of diligence pays off. In 1863, at age 24, Rockefeller gets involved in the oil business, along with partners Maurice Clark and Samuel Andrews. Uh, Andrews Clark & Co. builds a refinery in the Flats, Cleveland's burgeoning industrial area, which will soon be linked to the East Coast hubs by the Atlantic and Great Western Railroads. Uh, two years later, in 1865, Rockefeller would buy his partners out and found Rockefeller and Andrews, Cleveland's largest oil refinery. In 1868, still not yet 30, Rockefeller strikes a major deal with the railroad, guaranteeing a certain volume of shipments in exchange for rebates. The first of many, this deal was uh, made with Jay Gould, owner of the Erie Railroad. That same year, the Rockefellers, John is now married to Lori Spellman, uh, Laura Spellman and has a daughter named Bessie. Move to Cleveland's Millionaire's Row. Motherfucker is moving on up.
0: In the sky.
1: God, that theme song makes me so happy. Uh, in 1870, when he's only 31, Rockefeller found Standard Oil of Ohio, worth a million dollars in capital, the largest corporation in the country. The new company controls 10% of U.S. petroleum refining. John's younger brother, William Jr., also a co founder, Uh, While a very capable businessman, he plays a much smaller role in everything than John D., which is why we don't hear his name as much today. Through secret alliances with railroads, accumulating segments of the supply chain to achieve economies of scale, buying out, and intimidating rivals, and serving the growing demand for quality kerosene, standard oil explodes, eventually truly dominates the oil market. Rockefeller wouldn't become nationally known as a tycoon quite yet. In 1877, at only 38 years old, Rockefeller controlled almost 90% of the oil refined in the U.S., still not that many people knew about it probably because he's still living in cleveland not even kidding cleveland does not get nearly as much respect as it should i'm biased because my polish monster of a wife and her monster polish family are from there but cleveland's fucking dope love that city no burning river jokes no browns jokes coming uh seriously very cool chicago's little brother that's smaller and quieter but once you get to know him you're like yeah chicago's great but you're fucking great too little guy who's actually not that little I know this has nothing to do with today's story, but I feel like showing Cleveland some love when I can. Uh, Even when the Browns do something as incredibly fucking stupid as tying their future to a dirtbag like Deshaun Watson. What the fuck? Hope he's finally keeping some of his clothes on for his massages now, or at least no longer trying to rub his dick on masseuses. If you're real curious about what I'm referencing here, just do a quick Google, read a few articles. Yikes. Browns made a deal with the devil to try and win a Super Bowl. Uh, Anyway, within two years of controlling almost 90% of all the oil refined in the U.S., John Dee becomes one of the country's 20 richest men. By the mid-1880s, Standard Oil expanded the overseas markets of Western Europe and Asia, selling more oil abroad than in the U.S. now, and his wealth increases exponentially. In 1882, Standard Oil Trust is formed. Rockefeller creates a highly centralized structure with enormous power but murky legal existence. Standard Oil builds up its distribution system, streamlining, streamlining the delivery and sale of oil using its immense product volume and market dominance to undersell adversaries. And now the Rockefellers move to New York and bring Standard Oil along with them. This is when John D. becomes famous as fuck. No city seems to capture America's imagination more than New York City does it. Not unless you uh, work in film, then historically, uh, maybe Hollywood ranks a tick higher, but overall, it's New York. And no part of New York City seems to be more identified with making it than Manhattan. And it is a special city. Uh, Standard Oil's new headquarters are located at 26 Broadway in Manhattan. Uh, the building there today finished in 1926, 31 stories tall, uh, massive, architecturally magnificent like so many other buildings in the Big Apple. For the next several decades, Standard Oil will continue to make insane sums of money while John D. attempts to evade political scrutiny for his domineering business practices. In 1890, Congress passes the Sherman Antitrust Act, which outlaws trusts and combinations and restraint of trade and establishes fines for violators. That law remains in effect today. But it'll take a while for this law to catch up with Rockefeller and the army of lawyers he has retained. In 1904, Standard Oil controls 91% of oil refinement, 85% of final sales in the U.S. Finally, in 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court orders Standard to break up into 34 independent companies with different boards of directors. Uh, the biggest two of these companies uh, that used to be Standard Oil um, are uh, become one is Standard Oil of New Jersey, which becomes Exxon, and then Standard Oil of New York, which becomes Mobil. So Exxon and Mobil, and then in 1999, those two gigantic oil companies merged back together into Exxon Mobil. So so much for uh, breaking up monopolies, Uncle Sam. Looking at you, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet, aka Google and YouTube and more. Uh, Also, this court order actually turned to be a, a financial windfall for Rockefeller who still held a quarter of Standard Oil stock in his recent retirement, or after his recent retirement, when he's now 72, the individual pieces of the company were worth more than the whole was. And as shares of the individual companies double and triple in value in the early years, Rockefeller becomes the country's first billionaire with a fortune worth nearly 2%, like, you know, as I talked about before, of the entire American economy. In his uh, later years, he'll live into the age of 97. Great genes in this family. Uh, Rockefeller will turn into, uh, he'll turn to philanthropy. Do a little image rehab. He had done philanthropy before, but now he hires Frederick Gates, a former Baptist minister, to make his philanthropy more effective. And this will really help the Rockefeller name endure and trickle down to Clark Rockefeller. He'll create the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research. The institute called Rockefeller University today becomes a leader in the uh, new field of experimental medicine. In 1913, the Rockefeller Foundation is incorporated to quote, promote the well-being of mankind throughout the world. Lofty goal. I like it. Rockefeller gives the foundation $100 million in just its first year. John D. uh, will give away $540 million over his lifetime, and that's in dollar terms of the time, and he became the greatest benefactor of medicine in history, lay benefactor. Uh, His son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., OG John D.'s only son, also gave away over $537 million over his lifetime, bringing the total philanthropy of just two generations of the family to over a billion from 1860 to 1960. His son lived to the age of 86. If all that money was given in 1960, that would be the equivalent of $10 billion today. Because it started to be donated in 1860, it's worth so much more than that. Some real tricky to accurately determine since it was dished out at you know many intervals over such a large span of time. John Jr. would launch the restoration of uh, Colonial Williamsburg. His wife, Abby, would be one of the co-founders of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. MoMA, kind of a big deal. Uh, John Jr. would uh, also donate 11,000 acres in Maine to what will become uh, Acadia National Park. Adding to all this, David Rockefeller, one of John Jr.'s five sons, donates around $900 million as of 2006 to various causes over his life. And he lived until 2017, age of 101. What the fuck is going on? Maybe the Rockefellers do really drink adrenochrome. Uh, the list of Rockefeller philanthropic efforts is enormous, as is the list of places the Rockefellers paid or helped pay to build. Uh, the Embarcadero Center of San Francisco... Uh, that I believe houses Punchline Comedy Club. I played so many times over the years, if not Punchline, just right across the street. Uh, A giant commercial complex of five office towers, two hotels, shopping center. That's a Rockefeller project. Grand Teton National Park, uh, 310,000 acres next to Yellowstone, largely created through Rockefeller philanthropic efforts. Manhattan's Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, spearheaded by Rockefeller. University of Chicago founded with Rockefeller money. List goes on and on. Despite being about a century removed from their prime earning years and despite giving away billions and billions of dollars, the Rockefeller family is still worth around $8 billion, one of the uh, top 50 wealthiest American families today. And uh, despite the recent wealth of, say, the Waltons, currently America's wealthiest family with all that Walmart money, even though Elon Musk is worth more all by himself, uh, no family in America has ever had the multi-generational wealth and left their mark all across the nation with national parks, universities, cultural institutions, and more than the Rockefellers. The only big thing a Rockefeller hasn't done in America is become president. Nelson Rockefeller, grandson of John D., uh, was governor of New York and Gerald Ford's vice president, but never a Rockefeller president. Uh, 81 Rockefeller residences, now in the National Register of Historic Places, and all this started with John D. After he died, he was buried at the uh, Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland, uh, tying all this to our con man, Clark, John D. was, in addition to wealth building and philanthropy, pretty good at making kids. He had five. Some of his kids were good at making kids. John Jr. had six. His daughter, Edith, had five. Many of his grandkids, very good at having kids as well. As of 2006, the total number of his blood relatives, direct descendants, thought to be around 45 million people. Some of his grandkids, males obviously, had several hundred kids Each. There was a Rockefeller sperm bank in Manhattan in the 70s where it cost $100,000, so 100 grand, uh, to get pregnant because you were guaranteed Rockefeller sperm. A few lesser-known Rockefellers spent years beating off in that clinic five, 10 times a week. You've heard the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, this place, the slogan was, you can join them if you let them beat it. The name of the clinic was the Rockefeller Wealth Juice Distillery. Leonardo DiCaprio, Ethan Hawke, Chris Pratt, Uma Thurman, Jennifer Connelly, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, Kobe Bryant, magician David Blaine, hockey people, soccer guys, all Rockefeller wealth juice babies. And of course that's insane. Uh, no, uh, that, that, that part's person. No, uh, as of 2006, the total number of John D's blood relative direct descendants uh, thought to be around 150, not in the millions. Uh, this includes the descendants of William Avery Rockefeller Jr., John D's brother. And there are hundreds of others that are still tied to the family and the Rockefeller fortune. And thanks to so many trusts and inheritances, uh, most of them are rich, if not outright wealthy, And finally, unless you're the fucking president of the Rockefeller Family Fan Club, that's a lot of Rockefellers to keep track of, which is what made it possible for Clark to claim relation and fool so many people. And all that history, that is why the name Rockefeller means something to uh, many in America today, especially to those who value status in a country without actual royalty. They're about the closest thing America has to blue blood. Uh, In full, Clark would assume the name James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller. Oh, nice. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, If you're going to pretend to be a Rockefeller, you can't just be Clark. No, you got to be James Frederick Mills Clark. That's not a name. That's a story. You have so many successful, important relatives, you need four names to fucking honor them all. Uh, How did Clark get people to believe his story? He wasn't pulling this off in 1900. He was pulling this off in the early 2000s. Someone, anyone could have easily gotten online and just checked into who the so-called Rockefeller really was. In 2005, Wikipedia became the most popular reference website on the internet three years before he was brought down, right? There was a lot of info uh, on the web by that point. It would have been very easy to see, for example, that the woman Clark claimed as his mom, the child star Ann Carter, known for her starring role opposite Humphrey Bogart in the Two Mrs. Carrolls, a 1947 film noir, uh, whom he claimed was dead while was actually alive and well at the time. She wouldn't die until 2014, years after Clark's true identity was found out. And Ann's Wikipedia page referenced her as having three kids, none of whom are named Clark. Gail, David, and Carol. Also, never married to a Rockefeller. Married to a Crosby Newton. But no one, not until shortly before he was arrested, bothered looking this dude up. He was that good. They just bought it. And I get it. I have also known people who just casually have told me this or that, and I just assumed they were telling me the truth. I can reference several uh, who have sold a fake life, not just to me, but to uh, a bunch of people. I actually dated someone, I will not name, uh, not long before Lindsay, for somewhere around nine months, maybe. We were pretty serious and then uh, sadly, some six months or so after we broke up, I heard from a mutual friend that she had cancer uh, and it was bad. She went through all kinds of treatments, even flew to Germany for experimental treatments not offered here in the US. And in the end, wasn't enough. Eh, tragic, she left behind two young daughters. Uh, she had a GoFundMe and I helped out a bit, couldn't help as much then. But the posts on the GoFundMe page kept me updated on you know who was around her, helping her, how things were going. And some of what I read, uh, some of the pics I saw really threw me for a loop because she told me she uh, had been married I knew who she was married to, and I believed her when she said that uh, she and this guy had been separated for years prior to us meeting, like three or four. She admitted to still being technically married, but they lived separate places, had separate lives. Uh, She had dated a few guys seriously before me and after him. I met one of them uh, who she was still friends with, so the story seemed to check out. I stayed over at her place often enough uh, for the whole story to seem, you know, legit. He never stopped by. I met him once. Uh, when I was, uh, uh, early in, in, in dating with her and she got real weird about it, told me to tell him I was just a friend, uh, but they didn't act romantic towards each other. I did get pissed, accused her of dating me behind this guy's back. She got furious, strongly denied that, said it was, uh, really complicated. He was trying to ruin her life. I took her side, told me that he was literally insane, disassociative personality disorder. Uh, he was emotionally abusive and a closeted homosexual who used her as a beard, Once they had a kid together, uh, you know, to sexually abandon her. When she didn't want to play pretend married anymore, she became enemy number one and uh, he wanted to punish her. Uh, You know, she said he threatened to totally ruin her if they uh, actually got divorced. He didn't want to have to legally pay alimony, child support, et cetera, et cetera. Told me all sorts of shit. And in my gut, I questioned a lot of it. I brought up questions to her. She would get so mad, cry, the tears seemed genuine. I believed her. I believed he was the manipulative one. But then finally, not long before we broke up, I met her sister and brother-in-law and they told me we shouldn't be dating that she was still married to this guy and they were working things out. So my head's spinning. I, of course, bring this up <laughs> to the woman I'm dating. She talks about how controlling her sister is and jealous. And she's a very, very Christian and wants her to stay in a loveless, sexless live marriage because she's in one and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, this, yeah, this girl I did was so convincing. Despite having some doubts in the end, I just bought it. I, t- uh, I did look online, tried to learn more, uh, but I couldn't catch her in any lies. So again, just bought it. And then we broke up, not over that, but over jealousy, uh, her jealousy. But then after we broke up, look at these GoFundMe pics. I see that uh, she's back with this guy. And she's giving quotes about how supportive her husband is. And it was such a mind fuck. Now I'm thinking, like, d- did they get back together or were they ever truly apart? I was out of town a fair amount touring. I wanted to ask questions, but she was literally dying. So that's cold and selfish for me to do. And I'm with Lindsay at this point. So what does it really matter? Uh, Lindsay didn't like her. Her gut has been better than mine on, on several people. But I wonder, and I still wonder, was he a good guy? And was she the manipulative one, right? Um, She didn't work. Was she refusing to sign divorce papers and tormenting him somehow? Well, what didn't I know? A major theme in my relationship with this woman was figuring out how to get her out of what she claimed to be uh, was a trap, how to free her from this controlling, mentally ill psychopath, Uh, you know, without him somehow getting custody of her kids, without him hurting the kids, which she said she was also worried about. But she never wanted to talk to a lawyer, always had some reason, some excuse. The time wasn't Right. Drove me crazy. Nothing added up. And then I wonder now if the whole story was a lie. You know, i worked with someone. Uh, I now have a lot of questions about, like, who really is this person? Uh, you know, it can mess with your head. Con artists, when they refuse to tell the truth, or at least all of the truth, no matter how much evidence is stacked up against what they're saying, holy shit, they are such a maddening bunch. So good, they make you feel crazy for questioning them. And I bring all this up to say, I don't think Clark fooled the people he did because they were stupid. Uh, you'll see by the end of this suck, the woman he has a child with is anything but stupid. I think because Clark lied so constantly and so convincingly for so long because he was so charming, he just left people thinking, you know, if they had doubts, well, I must be paranoid. I mean, it's Clark. He wouldn't lie to me. He's a great guy. He's so fun. And the longer you're on the end, uh, the receiving end of these lies, uh, for me personally, the more you don't you know, want to believe you've been lied to because that makes you feel stupid. Uh, one of our space listeners, Jen Gray, reminded me on Patreon recently, this refusal to accept that someone is a liar even when you know deep down that they're full of shit can be explained in part by what's called sunk cost fallacy, defined as the phenomenon where a person is reluctant to abandon a strategy or course of action because they have invested heavily in it, even when it is clear that abandonment would be more beneficial. This helps explain why cult members continue to stay in cults long after cult behavior becomes wildly inappropriate and harmful and helps explain, at least for me, why people continue to buy someone's bullshit long after they should have realized that they were being buffaloed. Well, that's just what I think. Let's look more into what uh, actual experts have come up with. Uh, Stories of con men such as Clark Rockefeller raise a number of puzzling questions, including what incredible talents for deceit could allow someone to fool so many so dramatically for so long? The surprising answer is not much talent at all. You have to be really get at lying, you don't have to be that smart, <laughs> that creative. Uh, while surveys repeatedly show that people have a great deal of confidence in their ability to detect lies, psychological studies of lie detection reveal that in fact, most people have no better than a 50-50 chance of spotting a lie. Depressing, right? But uh, it does make me feel less stupid for being tricked by numerous people numerous times in my life. Also, to help any of us who have experienced some degree of this uh, uh, feeling, uh, you know, uh, less than stupid, numerous studies of so-called lie detection experts, such as judges and police officers, demonstrate that they are no better at spotting lies than the rest of the population. It wasn't that Rockefeller was especially cunning. It was that the people he was fooling, like almost all people are easily fooled. Good news, bad news, right? Good news is uh, you're not down for being tricked. Bad news, going to be pretty easy to trick you again. Uh, let's look further into how people in general end up getting conned. It might have something to do with two opposing facts. One, none of us uh, can believe that it can happen to us because we think ourselves is smarter or better. Two, it happens to people literally all the time. In fact, the Federal Trade Commission reported that people lost almost one and a half billion dollars to fraud in 2018, an increase of 38% from 2017. Despite there being more articles than ever before online about cons and con artists, Despite them being talked about in more articles, on podcasts, docu-series, serialized dramas, movies, etc. These motherfuckers keep fooling us. Con artists often prey on people's trust and their propensity for believing that what they uh, wish to be true is true. Especially with get-rich-quick schemes and a desire for romance. right? Sex and money. So much of life traces back to uh, sex and money. The promise of getting rich quick or the promise of some idealized romantic companionship. uh, You know, uh, some sexy ass Uh, fulfill your every fucking desire. Hail Lucifina, hot dams that give a a lot of us uh, or get a lot of us into trouble over and over. We just want it to be true so bad, right? And a good con artist is hyper aware of that. They also prey on health concerns. Snake oil, baby, right? Uh, Why do we want to be well? So we can enjoy life of sex and money. Clark Rockefeller would present himself to his wife, Sandra, as the ideal partner, romantic companionship, right? Falls into the sex category. And he would tell many of those around him that he was going to help people out financially buy their artwork, uh, uh, donate a planetarium to their school, so money. Many of the people he met wanted to believe it was that easy. They run into a Rockefeller and their life gets better. In other words, they had trust. Trust is the baseline, according to Susan Fisk, social psychologist at Princeton. Trustworthiness is the very first thing that we decide about a person. and Once we've decided, we do all kinds of elaborate gymnastics to believe in people. We want to trust people around us. We want to believe we make good social choices because we are smart. We are good at reading people. And we want to be surrounded by people who care about us and value us. It makes life easier and better. Gives us security and comfort. There's a lot of incentive uh, to surround yourself with people you trust. And as members of a herd species, and obviously there are hermity outliers to this, but overall, we're hardwired to want to be surrounded by others. Overall, trust is actually a very good thing for human society, so it's instinctual for us to have it. In 1971, a Harvard biology graduate student named Robert L. Trivers speculated that the sort of advanced cooperation that allowed people to build pyramids, fight in phalanxes, hold uh, quadrennial elections had emerged initially on a foundational level out of trust. Society, civilization built on the back of trust. The social contract, that implicit agreement among the members of a society to cooperate for social benefits, uh, for example, by sacrificing some individual freedom for state protection built on trust. If we can't ever trust each other, we can't have nice things. You know, we don't come together to build roads and schools and have law enforcement and armies and universities and hospitals and on and on. All of that requires trust. Trust gives us so many great and wonderful things. Uh, Robert L. Trivers, again, uh, who went on to uh, get a PhD and become an incredibly important and influential American evolutionary biologist and social biologist, actually called the advanced cooperating required to build a civilization, reciprocal altruism, a basic you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours instinct, a foundational driving force of humanity. A whole package of human emotions has evolved over thousands and thousands of years uh, to encourage this instinct. Trust is one of these emotions. uh, So is guilt which discourages us from cheating in collaborative situations, uh, moral outrage, which galvanizes the community to punish anyone who uh, does cheat. And when we decide who to trust, the research suggests people use shortcuts. For example, we look at faces, hence the well-known expression of face you can trust. According to somewhat recent work by Nicholas Osterhoff and Alexander uh, Todorov of Princeton's psychology department, we form our first opinions of someone's trustworthiness from their basic facial features. In a paper published in June 2008, they suggested that our unconscious bias is a byproduct of more adaptive instincts. The features that make a face strike us as trustworthy, if exaggerated, make a face look happy, which uh, with arching inner eyebrows, upturned mouths, and an exaggerated untrustworthy face looks angry, furrowed brow, and frown. In this argument, people with trustworthy faces simply have, by luck of the genetic draw, faces that look a little more cheerful to us. Right? If you happen to look like an old-timey villain tying damsels to train tracks, well, you're probably going to uh, not lock uh, in as many handshake deals over the course of your life as you would if you happen to look like Tom Hanks or Betty White or Morgan Freeman. They just look or looked so damn trustworthy. Right? Take the fame away from Jack Nicholson. Dude does not look trustworthy. Too much arch in those eyebrows. Probably why he's uh, played so many villi- villains convincingly. Something about the curve of his smile based on a lot of his cheekbones. He just reads as sinister. Uh, in reality, of course, cheekbone shape, eyebrow arc, they don't have shit to do with honesty. But something in our cave people lizard brains from back when we were, uh, when people were trying to fool us maybe weren't as good at hiding their intentions on their faces, and maybe you could judge a book by its cover a little more reliably, it just hasn't evolved fast enough recently to get rid of this silly bias. Another set of cues, and a particularly powerful one, is body language. Mimicry, in particular, seems to put us at ease. Recent work by Tanya Chartrand a psychology professor at Duke and work by Jeremy Balenson and Nick Yee, media scholars at Stanford, have shown that if a person or even a computer animated figure mimics our movements while talking to us, we find them significantly more persuasive and honest. Now, where exactly does this come from? Who the fuck knows? Maybe uh, from uh, people who mirror us uh, socially generally have more empathy than people who don't. Totally pulling this out of my ass. Maybe we're drawn to what feels familiar because of our clannish ancestors being wary of outsiders. People who we weren't familiar with, uh, who often ransacked and raped and took our shit while we had reason to fear them. Or maybe our narcissistic egos just like whatever acts like us a little more than whatever doesn't act like us. One of the landmark studies on influence uh, was done in 1965 by the Ohio State psychologist, Timothy Brock. In this one, uh, shoppers at a paint store were approached by a research assistant who offered them advice on what type of paint to choose. He told half of the shoppers he approached that he had recently bought the same amount of paint that they were looking to buy told the other half he had bought a different amount. By and large, the first group took his advice and the second did not. Something as trivial as buying the same size bucket of paint, Brock argued, can forge a bond with a total stranger. Right, we want that bond because bonds with strangers historically have kept us alive. So you can see it's pretty easy to be influenced by all kinds of people. And most of the time being influenced is a good thing. Helps get friends, jobs, partners, etc. Most of the time, the way we influence one another on a daily basis is not done with ill intent. In essence, most of us don't weaponize our influence. But con artists like Clark Rockefeller do. do. Uh, Consciously and or subconsciously, they turn our instincts against us. They manipulate various psychological principles to take advantage of us and get what they want. Like the principle of reciprocity. If someone does something for us, we feel more obliged to do something for them. Con artists use this type of enforced indebtedness to elicit unwise actions from their targets. I feel like I'm teaching a class right now, (laughs) by by the way, on how to subtly fuck people over. Um, Hopefully this info is uh, used to try and detect bullshit, as hard as that is to do, more more often than it is used to spread it. Uh, Regarding enforced indebtedness, as an example, someone offering you uh, an exclusive opportunity to invest your money can be seen as doing you a favor. Maybe Clark uh, offers to donate something lavish or get you into an exclusive social club. This makes people want to return the favor, even if the first favor is still only in the offer stage. Returning the favor could be as simple as continue, uh, continuing to listen to their sales pitch or as destructive as signing up for some bogus investment scheme. There's also the foot in the door technique, where you ask someone for several small favors before you ask for a big one. Get them used to saying yes to you. Uh, a lot of salespeople use this one often. Uh, then there's this uh, the opposite the door in the face technique, where you ask for something fucking crazy first. And, uh, you know, maybe you ask me, I say no, but then you ask for something, uh, big, but not quite as crazy later. And I'm more likely to say yes, because I feel guilty for saying no. The first time the next psychological technique has to do with how we fall in line for what people around us are doing. Research shows that if a person believes other people are doing something, uh, then they feel it must be okay for them to do it as well. I may fall in line with this research here from time to time when it comes to, uh, drugs, you know, so-and-so did it. And they didn't lose their mind or die. So I will definitely be okay. Um, Maybe not the best way to make a decision. I know, but there's some logic behind it. And research shows I'm not a total maniac for employing that sort of logic. This is sometimes known as the lemming effect. An innate psychological phenomenon, a survival trait, an inborn instinct in the majority of people. It refers to lemming, small rodents that were thought to follow each other uh, as they charge off to their uh, deaths off the edge of a cliff. Uh, That is actually an unsubstantiated myth about Lemmings, but they become a metaphor for people who uh, go along unquestioningly with a group of potentially dangerous consequences. And Clark Chase, you don't want to be the only person doubting who someone says they are, the only person insisting that something isn't right about the whole Clark Rockefeller story. What if he becomes friends with everyone else at your social club, and now you're the social leper, right? The outsider who doubted this poor guy. Everyone else uh, buys the bullshit, so it must be a good thing to do, Right. How many fucking politicians does this apply to? How many people seem to buy their bullshit simply, at least it appears to me, because others around them also buy their bullshit. So it must be the right thing to do. I feel like humanity is fucking full of lemmings. I'm sure I'm one myself in, uh, uh, you know, many ways that I probably would hate to admit. Maybe, maybe I'm the anti-establishment lemming. lemming. <laughs> people I respect hate most politicians. So I follow them right off the fuck them all cliff. I don't know. Uh, the principle of scarcity. Another term that helps us understand how people fell for Clark Rockefeller. People are generally worried about missing out on an opportunity or the next big thing. If confronted with a situation where it seems like an offer won't be around very long, like if someone tells you the deal is for a limited time only, they're much more likely to act. Maybe I've lost uh, some money making those kind of investments. Uh, One last thing, the principle of similarity suggests that we tend to like people who seem to be the same as us. And in turn, we are much more likely to agree to a request from someone we like. Similarity can be as broad as an interest in financial investments or as fleeting as sharing some personal characteristics. This principle would play a huge role in Clark Rockefeller's story. The people Clark was associating with were, for the most part, very wealthy and successful people in finance, the art world, uh, high-end social circles. And Clark Rockefeller would manipulate his association with them using the mere exposure effect to his advantage. Another interesting principle, he knew that if he just showed up to the same places over and over again, uh, he would subconsciously become more familiar to them. If he could talk their talk, he seems like one of them. It's much easier to infiltrate their circles, right? Clark must be a good dude. I see him here all the time. Uh, He likes the same art I like, you know, uh, goes to the same restaurants. Smart, shady, but smart. Clark, uh, certainly no dummy. Many of the people Clark duped wanted to believe that they made it into the social group they belonged to because they were smart, wealthy, and successful. They told themselves on some level that this group was pretty insular. Not just anyone could get in. So Clark Rockefeller Rockefeller had to be who he was saying he was, right? Because he's in. Nope. Hard fucking nope. Better lies, better backstories, Papa Rockefeller. Uh, All righty, Meat Sacks. The stage has been set. I know that was a lot of info. Very dense. Now you can relax uh, for a little narrative. Now for today's crazy ass story. Uh, But first, a very important new sponsor would like to share a few words. Hey, gnarly bros and broettes. How's your butthole? Is it cool? Groovy? Copacetic? Or is it like way gnarly? Is it like so sad? Maybe crying into your undies sad? Maybe crying clean through your undies sad? Does a brown frown have your butt down? We'll turn that brown frown around. Keep that backdoor tight, right, and out of sight with Randy's Butt Socks. Specifically designed to be super absorbent and treated with antimicrobial, antimicrobial peppermint oil and anti odor microfibers so they never stink, Randy's Butt Socks are also made with a special proprietary silk and cotton blend for maximum comfort. In addition to embarrassing day-to-day leakage problems, Randy's Butt Socks can also be used to administer first aid. Maybe you overestimated how much your love butt can handle. Maybe you overestimated how much your partner's love butt could handle. Maybe you overestimated what any human butt could ever fucking handle under any conditions. Well, don't worry. Randy's got you. When you get whatever you shoved up there out, just plug that not quite as tight or right anymore hole with one of Randy's butt socks, or even a pair, or maybe even a full set of a half dozen pairs of Randy's butt socks. Order Randy's butt socks right now when you call 1-800-SAD-TUSH and get 50% off the softest thing you've ever shoved up your ass, guaranteed. Or your money back. That was not a real sponsor, of course. Uh, That was a tasteless reference to last week's horror. Let's now get into the many lives of Clark Rockefeller in today's Time Suck timeline. Right after, and you knew this was coming, today's real mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babel's quick 10 minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20 day money back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Me encanto, pargo rojo frito gustaria Un Poco de de Naranja Fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now get 55% off your Babel subscription, but only for our listeners at Babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for sticking around. Hope today's deals appeal to you, other than the randy stuff. Uh, Now let's actually meet the man who became Clark Rockefeller.
0: Strap on those boots, soldier. We're
1: marching down a time-suck timeline. February 21st, 1961. Christian Karl Gerhard Strider is born in Siegsdorf, Bavaria, Germany little 2,000-person town about 60 miles southwest of Munich and just a few miles from the Austrian border, uh, to Simon and Ermgard Gerhard Strider. His father was a house painter and an amateur artist. Mom is a seamstress. Neither are, of course, Rockefellers. Uh, Siegsdorf seems like a quaint little ski town full of Bavarian hospitality, natural beauty, breweries, some cool old buildings, and not a lot else. Seems like a quiet place to live a quiet life. Uh, what was Christian's childhood like there? Well, since he refuses to speak about it, and even if he did, could we really trust the words words that come out of his mouth? uh, We don't know much. He seems to have never returned to his hometown after leaving it as a teen, not even once. Whatever life he had there, he clearly didn't seem to want it anymore. Didn't seem to stay in contact with literally any family members, not even his brother, Alexander Gerhard Strider, the only sibling he seems to have had. Not surprisingly, the one friend of the family who would speak about him once he was arrested for kidnapping and murder over 20 years after leaving said he always had a rich fantasy life growing up and that he loved to assume imagined identities. This friend said he was like Batman, always going into different roles. Like his dad, he was an artist and he had these crazy ideas. Maybe this dude was destined to con. In 1978, when he's 17, Christian meets an affluent American couple in Germany, Elmer and Jean Kellen. He just happened to be traveling on the same train as them. They told him that if he was ever in the US that he should look him up. Uh, They didn't really expect him to ever do that. Just something people say to people they meet abroad, the Kellens later admitted. And uh, they were just a wee bit surprised when 17 year old Christian arrived unannounced on the family's doorstep in Meriden, Connecticut in 1978. They were shocked when he turned their offer to stop by if he was ever in the area into an invitation to stay with them for a while. He also uh, said to the immigration uh, officials that the Kellens had invited him to stay, which was how he was able to get into the country. Feeling guilty, like they must have communicated uh, incorrectly. Like it was somehow their fault, he assumed that he could stay with them and being nice people, they let him crash at their place until he could find someone else to stay with. How fucking uncomfortable would that be? I would like to think I wouldn't let this guy stay at my house if he showed up in a situation like that. But if someone as manipulative as Clark showed up, I don't know, maybe that fucker would have tricked me too. Gotta hate weasels like this guy. What a shitty thing to do to someone. Elmer, Gene, oh, so great to see you. Thank you again for the invite. You guys are so incredibly generous to let me crash at your place for a bit. I just, um, I'd, I'd never, um, I'm sorry. I just, uh, I would never be able to realize my lifelong dream of having a chance at living in America if not for you two angels. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're just like, oh, um, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, of course. Wow. Sorry. We don't have the guest room ready. <laughs> I just never thought you would, uh, show up, you know, unannounced and stuff, but well, you know what? You're here. And that's what matters. Hey, Gene, can I speak to you alone in the kitchen for a second? What the fuck is that weird German boy doing in our house? Uh, Christian had told his parents that a New York radio station hired him as a DJ. Bullshit. Uh, then his folks, folks lost track of him. Seems seemed like he just walked away, kind of abandoned his, uh, his family, left his old life behind. After living with the Kellens for a short time, he posted an ad for lodging in the local newspaper. Eventually landed lodging with the Savio family in nearby Berlin, Connecticut, suburb of Hartford. Berlin, how appropriate, uh, told the Savios he was an exchange student, that he was going to finish high school in the States, also mentioned that his family in Germany was incredibly wealthy. His dad, he claimed, was an industrialist. He name-dropped Mercedes, implying his dad worked for them on a high level. In the Savio home and in Berlin High School, Christopher Gerhardt's writer, as he was calling himself by then, he kind of just changed the spelling a little bit, uh, began his process of reinvention. He practiced his English, cultivated an appearance of nobility. Tight European clothing, long, well-kept hair, white sunglasses. Uh, He was particularly fascinated with Gilligan's Island, specifically the character Thurston Howell III, character played by uh, Jim Bacchus. Thurston Howell III was an ascot-wearing millionaire member of the Northeastern elite who spoke in a transatlantic accent, frequently quibbled with his wife, Lovey. Also thought menial labor uh, on the island was beneath him was constantly looking for ways to monetize natural resources. Christian even mimicked Thurston's speech patterns. And maybe more. Do you remember that show Gilligan's Island? It was fantastic. Still is. Remember Thurston? Uh, Here's Thurston and Lovey talking about the world, just to give you an idea of the kind of dude Christian wanted to be that he basically would become. It's a weird choice.
0: I Thurston Howell the third, being of sound mind and body... Not so hear- fast, darling. Uh, yes, yes, of course. I Thurston and howl the third, being sound mind and
1: body, do hereby bequeath and devise all my holdings in the Transcontinental Railroad to one Gilligan. <laughs> oh, I don't think you should leave the railroad to Gilligan. Oh, no, but boys love trains, my dear. No, the railroad definitely goes to Gilligan. But he can't possibly afford it. You said yourself that it loses a million a year. Yes, yes, you're so right. You're absolutely right. I'll tell you what.
0: Leave the diamond mine to Gilligan.
1: Oh, I thought of Ginger for the diamond mine. She has such a lovely throat. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Much more appropriate for Ginger. Now, I wonder, what are we going to leave the dear, dear, dear professor? How about that little island in the Pacific? You mean Australia? (laughs) So weird for a 17-year-old to want to be one of these people. To want to be like, that dude. Uh the show originally aired from 1964 to 1967, only ran for three seasons. I wonder if Christian watched it uh grown back uh grown up back in Siegsdorf. Uh Christian will uh uh quickly wear out his welcome with the Savios, he, acting like Thurston. Uh while he slept on their couch, not exact exactly luxurious living, he acted like he was living luxuriously. Uh each day when he woke, he began to expect his breakfast to be prepared for him and his clothing laundered. Uh why did they put up with that? Maybe they thought they were going to get uh, some piece of that fake daddy's Mercedes money or something. Maybe he alluded to that. Uh, but they got sick of it. The final straw came one winter afternoon when he refused to get up from the couch to unlock the door for Edward Savio's little sister. He was he was above it, dear. Uh, the Savios kicked a freeloader, freeloader uh, out who was already in the process of reinventing himself. By the time he left the Savio house, uh, now he was calling himself Chris Kenneth Gerhardt. Uh, changed Carl to Kenneth. Americanized his last name. The transformation, you know, going further. He'd hung around Berlin long enough to graduate high school. Now he leaves for the University of Wisconsin, uh, the Milwaukee campus, where he'll study film and where he'll later tell the Savios in a phone call he planned to vote for Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. One of them said that it, that was impossible because he wasn't an American citizen. Uh, not a problem, he said. He would soon have a green card and become a legal resident. February 20th, 1981, about to turn 20-year-old Christian gets a quickie green card marriage to 22-year-old Amy Gersield Dunkey. For some reason, she wouldn't file for divorce until 1992. Uh, to persuade Dunkey to marry him, uh, Gerhard Schreider falsely claims that if he had to go back to West Germany, he'll have to go into the military, be sent to fight in the Cold War on the Russian front line. Uh, the day after their marriage becomes valid, he just fucking ghosts this lady. Several weeks after the wedding, stops showing up for classes. Uh, then he calls the oldest, oldest Savio brother, uh, Edward, who's now living in L.A., trying to establish himself as a screenwriter. He will become one. Uh, he had, he tells him he just arrived in LA himself and wants to say hello. And he's also going into the film business. So cool. Having now mastered English, the young man is calling himself Christopher Chichester, ready to start another new identity. Not in LA, but a nearby San Marino. Good call. Too much too much competition for hustlers in LA. Uh, LA full of con artists and hustlers. I used to joke around with friends that uh, there were no waiters or baristas or anyone just working a straight regular job in Santa Monica or Beverly Hills, Hollywood, et cetera under the age of about 70 only actors producers and writers you know also working other jobs until they became rich and famous of course it seemed like everyone was just taking acting classes or trying to sell a spec script or involved somehow in some entertainment venture some were serious most seemed to be just full of shit most of them didn't seem to be uh, there for love of the craft they just uh, you know wanted to be famous and they would tell you all sorts of bullshit to get you to believe they were on their way to becoming a big star darling You know, they'd prey on people making them think they can make them a big star. Uh, So why did Christian, now Christopher, pick San Marino? He probably chose it because of affluence. San Marino, which lies southeast of Pasadena, uh, created in 1903 by the American railroad magnate, Henry E. Huntington, when he purchased the San Marino Ranch and founded the community. Uh, From its inception, it attracted the wealthiest families from nearby Pasadena's uh, well-heeled upper class. George S. Patton, Sr., father of the famed American general, served as the city's first elected mayor. For the first few decades, the city's population and number of residential parcels were effectively stabilized by stringent minimum lot size requirements. San Marino's limitations on new development meant that anyone who wanted in had to buy in and pay up. Uh, Also, uh, a a little racist, uh, real blue blood shit. During the 1960s, San Marino residents expressed deep concerns about threats to the community's racial makeup. In 1966, the San Marino Board of Realtors published ads alerting local homeowners that a drastic federal forced housing law now being considered by Congress will destroy your basic rights unless you act now. The federal legislation in question would eventually become the Fair Housing Act. Exercising preference, the ad warned, could result in payment of unlimited damages. It was a very white affluent community that was very concerned about letting anyone in who wasn't rich or white into their community And uh, any kind of home-owning way. Maybe come in and, you know, clean some dishes and mow some lawns, but then uh, get the fuck out. Or maybe don't even come into town to mow some lawns. In the mid-1980s, gardeners still racially self-identified in San Marino classified ads. That's when you know your community is racist as fuck. Uh, When a bunch of your neighbors don't even want any non-whites pulling weeds and pruning trees. In 1994, the city council formed an ethnic harmony commission to study how best to deal with the issues relating to the sudden change in the city's ethnic makeup due to an influx of Asian immigrants. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How do we deal with this new ethnicity? Uh, I'll answer that. Uh, go introduce yourselves. Go say hello. Meet the new people. Uh, find out that you probably have a lot more in common with them than you thought, and then get the fuck on with your life. I lived in a very ethnically mixed neighborhood on the uh, edge of LA and Santa Monica, primarily Hispanic. And it was great. Ethnicity doesn't equal crime or anything negative. Poverty and a feeling of no socioeconomic opportunities. That creates problems for a community, not race. Worry about poverty. Worry about a lack of opportunity. Uh, These uh, days, things in San Marino are a little different. Only 49.8% of households in San Marino are white, but it's still pretty affluent. When Christian moved to San Marino, it was a town of a lot of white people uh, who were uh, old money worried about a changing of the guard. Christian showed up pretending to be exactly the kind of person they wanted to move in. White alleged royalty from England with German noble ties. In San Marino, Christian lived in what was known to some locals as Submarino, one of the city's informal divisions, maybe still called that, not certain. Uh, Then there was, maybe still is, Supermarino on the hill with houses, you know, $5 million and up. Uh, San Marino was uh, on the flats, good big houses, you know, doctors and professionals. And then Submarino, where houses were a little cheaper for maybe engineers, school teachers, uh, some comparatively lower income households christian was living rent-free uh, in a guest dwelling when he uh, moved to san marino behind the main house of ruth dd sohus known to neighbors as a reclusive alcoholic some of her family will later uh, become convinced that christopher was stealing from her manipulating someone who was almost always drunk and when sober uh doesn't sound like she was real uh with it right away christopher became a regular at local businesses and any social club that would have him social clubs were where uh, free lunches were served to members. Uh, At the prominent churches, he became familiar, where he crashed weddings with bountiful buffets. At libraries, he became familiar. He'd loiter for hours reading. Soon, with his Ivy League clothes, impeccable manners, and aristocratic accent, uh, he was squiring various local elderly widows around, enjoying their big houses and lavish lifestyles. I had to guess he was scamming the fuck out of them. We'll have more details from his life as Clark Rockefeller, not as much with previous incarnations. Uh, Christopher flashed an oversized business card, Around San Marino, embossed with what he claimed was the Chichester family crest, a heron with its wings spread, an eel in its beak, and the family motto "Firm in foy firm in faith. Uh, the card read "Christopher Chichester, uh, Christopher Chichester, the Thirteenth BT, Thirteenth uh, Baronet, San Marino, California." But this Thirteenth Baronet is living in a local alcoholic recluse's guesthouse, huh? Uh, Christopher told people he was royalty in England, specifically a descendant of Lord Mountbatten, the British naval officer and last British viceroy of India. Uh, we've actually met Lord, Bat- uh, Lord Mountbatten here in the Suck, known to uh, friends as Dickie. Met him in the Lady Diana episode, if his name sounds familiar. Uh, Christopher also said he was a descendant of Sir Francis Chichester, a British businessman and pioneering aviator, someone knighted by Queen Elizabeth. For becoming the first person to sail single-handed around the world and the fastest circumnavigator nine months and one day overall in 1966, 1967, love. Uh, one day, he showed a San Marino resident newspaper from a neighboring community where the headline was all about Sir Francis Chichester, uh, complete with a picture of him and the famous sailing ship of his, the Gypsy Moth. And the story mentioned that his relation, a young Christopher Chichester, incredibly was living in San Marino. Uh, that resident will later wonder how he uh, fucking doctored that somehow. He forged that newspaper. Because the star of the suck is not related to that dude. Uh, star of this suck. Uh, Chris, Christian definitely put a lot of effort into his uh, royal Christopher Chichester act. He put a lot of work into crafting the, uh, the character of a British gentleman. Every time he would meet a, a new woman, he would kiss her on the hand. Uh, he's he's Thurston how the third love. You look simply radiant, darling. That dress looks simply divine on you. I must have died. I, I simply must have. For I'm in the presence of one of God's most beautiful angels. And with men, thanks to all his library study time, this dude did work hard at Connie. He could seemingly intelligently talk about anything business, society, politics, especially royalty. Soon he became a uh, rota- Rotarian, a member of the Rotary Club, and was a member of the City Club as well. The City Club in San Marino has been around since 1926, it's where a lot of deals have been made. More wealthy movers and shakers in the area have uh, made and maintained a lot of important friendships and business relations in this club. Christopher showed his face around here a lot, quickly became the darling of the city fathers and their wives and daughters, including a woman named Carol Campbell, who accepted a lunch date with him, said she was surprised to find the esteemed nephew of Lord Mountbatten driving a nerdy tan Datsun, <laughs> the interior of which was completely plastered with yellow post-it notes to himself, like as in written to himself, uh, to, to Christopher, uh, the date turned out to be a round of errands with Christian talking about uh, himself the entire time. Carol thought he was a creep and a liar. Good for Carol. Unfortunately, many, if not most, of the other people in the area uh, thought he was legit. Within a few years, he even had his own local TV show, Inside San Marino. It was public access on Channel 3, and the crew, quote-unquote, only consisted of a part-time teenage cameraman and the producer, Christopher Chichester. Uh, but still, it helped him raise his profile in the area. A woman named Peggy uh, Peggy. Eb- Oh my gosh, Peggy Abright, the show's interviewer, marveled over how he got so many guests to appear on a show almost no one watched. He got the who's who of San Marino's upper crust to sit down for interviews, making them feel like local celebrities playing to those egos. Radiant, darling, you're beaming, you're a star, love. Uh, Nine miles down the freeway from San Marino is the University of Southern California with its celebrated film school. And here, Christopher Chichester also became a familiar presence. Quickly, it seemed that he knew everyone and everything uh, going on at USC. Although no records list uh, Chichester has ever been a student of the film school, he always seemed to have a screenplay from its library under his arm. Uh, Dana Farrar, a film and journalism student at the time, would say he acted like he was a teacher's aide at Arthur Knight's class, which was a prestigious uh, introduction to film course, in which guest speakers included like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Clint Eastwood. I've heard of him. Uh, Where all the big stars would come and debut their films for the students. He told others he was working towards an MFA in film. He wasn't. Still, he invited some friends to be uh, his guests at a USC party attended by director Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, and a number of Hollywood stars to celebrate the opening of the uh, Marcia Lucas Post Production Building, a state of the art multimedia facility. And apologies if it's Marcia. But I believe it's uh, who? Marcia or Marsha? Uh, I'm getting you passes, Chichester said. And sure enough, he fucking did. Slippery fucker. At the party, he seemed to know everybody. right? Steelberg, everybody uh, posing with them for photos, laughing, drinking, uh, looking for all the world like an affluent young man with tight designer pants and a V-neck sweater. Things were going fucking great for the young German swindler out West. So why didn't he stay out there? Well, his West Coast plans uh, began to unravel when uh, some uh, unexpected snafu led him to killing a couple of people. He would only later be convicted for killing one of them, but I definitely think he killed both of them. Uh, suddenly at Didi's house, there was uh, another guest besides Christian. Her adopted son, John, geeky guy in his 20s who had a low level job in the computer department of a jet propulsion laboratory nearby Pasadena, Pasadena. I'm not calling him geeky, by the way. That's sources. Uh, he arrived with his wife, Linda, a vivacious redhead, as she described, aspiring artist who worked as a clerk at the Dangerous Visions science fiction bookstore. And the couple had four cats and something John realized that Christopher was conning his mom. And Christopher then realized John was about to take away his meal ticket, expose him to the community he'd worked so hard to ingratiate himself towards as a fraud. Now Christopher had to get rid of this new and unexpected problem. In early 1985, John and Linda told friends they had landed an important job with the U.S. government satellite program. Couldn't share any more details. A lot of top secret shit. They were sworn to secrecy. Uh, Linda let it slip to a friend that they both had to report immediately for duty in New York, Uh, but they would return to San Marino in two weeks to pack up their shit. Clearly, our con man was behind this lie. Shortly after John and Linda started sharing the story, Christian, and this won't look uh, good at all later, borrows a chainsaw from a neighbor. Also, at that same time, friends noticed that Christian's backyard's all dug up. Said he was having some plumbing problems. And multiple neighbors later remembered seeing strange colored smoke coming from a chimney around this time, uh, time of the disappearances, murders. Uh, more incriminating, he asked friends about places that uh, could dispose of drums filled with mysterious chemicals. Maybe worst of all, he tried to sell a blood-stained rug to a friend. Uh, Eight weeks later, since uh, not a word had been heard from them, Linda's sister called Didi Sohus for an explanation. She didn't have one. Didi also sounded fucking hammered when she spoke to Linda's sister, babbling something about a secret mission she couldn't talk about. Linda's sister naturally called the police, who now spoke to Didi. When officers showed up at Didi's house, she was again fucking wasted. And again, she babbled about some kind of secret mission she just couldn't talk about uh did he did tell officers that she knew that john and linda were okay though she uh, had heard from a secret source everyone would uh, later think this source was christopher this mystery source was giving her updates on her son and daughter-in-law who except for two postcards purportedly from linda postmarked in paris france were never heard from again linda or someone pretending to be linda only wrote about two short sentences in each and tonally both seemed very off to her family her sister didn't think she sent them someone pretending to be her did Also, some unnamed woman claiming to be Linda's friend uh, picked up her cats from a kennel months after she vanished. The kennel owner didn't get her name. Uh, If he didn't give the cats to her, they were going to be put down anyway. Weird, did Christian send that woman? Did he feel bad about the cats? Uh, And then the trail on John and Linda goes cold for a long time. But then five months after their disappearance, uh, Didi Sohas now files a missing persons report on her son and daughter-in-law saying her source has also disappeared. Uh, Funny enough, this disappearance coincided with Christian deciding to skip town. He said a family member had died and he had to go pick up, pack up the estate. He took all he could out of San Marino when he left, including the pickup truck that belonged to John. Uh, Trucked him, uh, you know, he must have been hiding from Dee. In late 1988, Gerhard rider will be pulled over in Greenwich, Connecticut while driving that pickup. But uh, he then left the area before police could interview him. And at that point, police had no proof that Jonathan and Linda Sohus were dead or that they hadn't left California voluntarily. Gerhard Strider also attempts to sell this truck to a preacher's son in Connecticut who doesn't buy it because he doesn't have proof of title. To this day, no one knows what happened to Linda Sohas. Her body has never been found. Uh, John's body will be found, though. And years later, Gerhard Strider will be convicted of his murder. Uh, Once in Connecticut, Gerhard Strider starts now going by another identity, Christopher Crow, uh, a, a TV producer. Showbiz, and that's how they do it in San Marino. I mean, Hollywood. Uh, Christopher Crowe claims to be a TV producer from LA who worked on the 1980s revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His alias matches the same name as one of the producers for the series. He can talk to producer talk, knows a lot about film, so no one in Connecticut seems to question the Great Pretender's new backstory. Uh, New life number three, right? He showed up in America as 17 year old Christian Gerhardt's writer, then goes to college for a while in Milwaukee as Chris Gerhardt, then uses some poor woman to get uh, permanent resident status, becomes Christopher Chichester. Now he's Christopher Crowe soon he'll ditch all the uh, christopher based aliases and lead his most successful fake life in connecticut christopher gravitates uh, once more to private clubs and older single women lonely old women with money a charming young con man's dream backing up a bit before getting pulled over in that stolen truck at the indian harbor yacht club in greenwich the 26 year old befriends someone who works at sn phelps and company a leading brokerage firm also in greenwich uh, or grant I think I think it's Greenwich, not Greenwich. Uh, maybe it's Greenwich. I, uh, soon, Christopher Crow gets an interview with the uh, well-known venture capitalist Stan Phelps, a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Business School, who had trained junk bond king Michael Milken among others. Uh, Milken worth somewhere around four billion dollars today. Stan Phelps not a dummy, but Christopher fooled him. Uh, Phelps hires Crow as a computer whiz. Uh, according to those in the firm, Christopher looked like a million bucks. Maybe wasn't as good at computers, but looked apart. Uh, had custom-made shirts with his monogram CCC on the pocket, wore a classic Burberry raincoat, no hair in his head, looked out of place. Although he was hired to work in computers, Crow frequently found himself in the trading room talking to uh, about his Hitchcock series he pretended to have worked on, bragging about some other made-up bullshit he never did. He'd speak often about his mother and sister in Paris, show photographs of his mansion in France, same place the couple who disappeared wrote postcards from, probably not a coincidence, Paris clearly on his mind at this time i'm sure he spent a lot of hours at the library studying up uh, for a new backstory his new job ends with weeks of it beginning when he's abruptly fired uh, after the completion of his background check the social security number he uh, wrote on his application belonged to former suck subject david fucking berkowitz son of sam the serial killer who haunted uh, new york in the uh, 70s uh, what the fuck why would he pick that guy's number i don't think it's a coincidence he picked that number shortly after almost certainly killing two people wonder if he thought about killing again, or maybe did kill again. If he was smart and sneaky enough to pull off uh, leading multiple fake lives for two decades, probably smart enough to have hidden a few extra bodies somewhere. Uh, Gerhard writer doesn't ditch the new alias despite this firing. He hops right back on the Christopher Crow horse. Despite having neither a college degree nor any semblance of experience in the financial world, Crow is next hired to head a department in the U.S. offices of Nico Securities Limited on Wall Street with an estimated beginning annual base salary of 150 grand. The department with offices in the World Financial Center would consist of five bond salesmen as well as a team of up to 15 traders and analysts. A July 13th, 1987 press release read Christopher Crow, who formerly ran the Battenberg Crowe Von Wetten Foundation, will lead the endeavor as vice president. Well, he was never director of the Battenberg Crow Von Wetten Foundation because there was no such foundation. God damn, this guy was good at bullshit. Uh, he never worked in finance, no degree in finance. Unreal. I'm not sure I could lie my way into a job stock and shelves at Target. This guy bullshits his way into $150,000 base salary in finance. And that's in 1987, where $150,000 was the equivalent of about $400,000 today. Uh, the appointment made headlines in The Bond Buyer, a bond industry periodical, which reported that Crow's department was participating in a $250 million Chevron Capital USA deal that came to market yesterday, as well as a $150 million Colgate Palm Olive Corporation offering. Crow said the department will, mostly work, uh, will work most heavily in the long-term industrial sector. Customers like industrials, he said, adding that they've been oversaturated with banks and finance. Probably something he overheard during his brief tenure at S.N. Phelps & Company. Uh, he doesn't know shit about bonds or the long-term industrial sector. His staff is unimpressed. It's obvious to them he has no experience. He was hired as the sales manager of corporate bonds, even though he had never sold a single corporate bond. But he did look the part. He was now living in another guest house on a Greenwich estate, uh, claiming that he was renovating the main house. He wasn't. He just conned someone else into, uh, you know, getting to live in their guest house. Sources don't say I'm guessing he found another lonely older woman charmed by this handsome young man, maybe hoping for some of that young dick to rejuvenate herself with. Uh, He still claimed to be related to Lord Mountbatten. He'd invested a lot of time into selling that ruse. And Lord Mountbatten was part of the Battenberg family from Germany, old European royalty. He also said he had a collection of Rolls Royces and Italian sports cars and every thing he owned was monogrammed CCC. But all those claims don't help you in the bond world if you don't know fucking anything about bonds. And soon he was released. I'm still impressed. He just got the job. Must have found a better social security number to use for that background check. Uh, after getting let go from this job, he gets another job in finance, a job in the Manhattan offices of the prestigious securities firm Kidder Peabody and Co. For fuck's sake. But then in, late 1998, then in late 1988, he gets pulled over in John and Linda's stolen truck. Why is he still driving that? In the course of their investigation, police discover that Christopher Chichester and Christopher Crowe are one and the same. Possibly tipped off, even though he wasn't going to be arrested, not yet, Crowe quits his new finance job shortly after having started it on the pretext that his parents were missing in Afghanistan, and he simply must rush off to save them. Uh, I don't know what accent that was. He, he wouldn't reappear for years, and then he'll never be seen again as Christopher Crowe. That alias is now dead. Uh, in late 1992, Christian Gerhard Schreiter reappears in New York City as Clark motherfucking Rockefeller. James, Frederick, Mills, Clark motherfucking Rockefeller. Uh, what did he do between 1988 and 1992? No idea. Probably nothing good. Maybe he killed a few widows. Maybe started taking their shit, something. Uh, he now moves into an apartment at 400 East 57th Street. And as quickly as possible, starts acquiring fancy new status symbols like a Gordon Setter named Yates. Gets himself a uh, upper, upper society dog um, and some impressive pieces of modern art. How did he get them? Con someone into guess, uh, getting them, uh, I'm guessing, stole them, fucking killed somebody and took them. Uh, he started meeting people at St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue, the epicenter of Manhattan Episcopalianism. Told him he was uh, from the Percy Rockefeller branch of the family, not a direct descendant of John D., but plenty rich. Percy was a nephew of John Dee, son of William Avery Rockefeller Jr., uh, listed as a co-founder of Standard Oil. So smart, uh, give people even less reason to question him. Going to be a little less likely for someone to dig into Billy Rockefeller's branch than John D.'s. Here in New York, he really begins to take on an old money eccentric persona. Acts paranoid, walks around with a radio device that he claims is connected to a security office, which he has to uh, to which he has to regularly report his whereabouts. Says he never goes to restaurants because he can't trust the kitchen. Maybe he's paranoid because people are looking for him because he fucked him over or killed a relative. There's so much more to his story that we'll probably never know. Uh, He eats mainly cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches uh, only on Pepperidge Farm bread with the crust removed, of course, on it, and Pepperidge Farm cookies, preferably of the Nantucket variety. Says his favorite food is haggis. Is anyone's favorite food really haggis? A savory pudding made up of sheep heart, liver, and lungs. And not enough spices to make you forget you're eating a bunch of fucking cheap heart, liver, and lungs. And his drink of choice is Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry. Most people buy him. Why question if he's a Rockefeller or not? Of course, he's eccentric and weird after a lifetime of privilege and riches. Raised by generations before him who grew up with privilege and riches. When asked what he does for work, uh, he tells people he is solving third world debt. Particularly in the Pacific Rim. And that his parents had died when he was just, uh, 16, just before he went to Harvard. Yes, he went to Harvard now sometimes in other stories. He said he was a Yale man said he entered Yale University at the age of 14 despite being mute for most of his childhood. <laughs> Still working the kinks out of this persona uh, regarding the whole mutinous thing. He said that an accident in his childhood had caused him to be mute, uh, which he was for eight years until he saw a dog and then suddenly yelped wolfness and began to speak again. Oh, wolfness, how adorable and precious and fucking stupid. Uh, one day, he asked an art collector if she would uh, uh, help him appraise his collection. She asked for the names of the artists uh, he uh, had pieces by. Is shocked when he rattles off a who's who of modern art: Jackson Pollock, uh, Mondrian, Rothko, Twombly. Uh, the art dealer estimates that his uh, collection is worth uh, several million dollars, but it's hard to say. It's strewn about the room. Uh, most of the pieces sitting on the floor. Were these real? I don't know what's going on here. Was he borrowing them? Were these forgeries? Who knows? He said he had inherited these uh, pieces of art from his great aunt Blanchette, the Museum of Modern Art Benefactor and widow of John D. Rockefeller III. All seemed to make sense. Blanchette Rockefeller had died in 1992, so there could have been an estate settled. But when the art dealer suggests a piece for Clark to add to his collection, he says no, because he doesn't buy pictures with green in them. That didn't seem like the opinion of a serious collector, but maybe he was just eccentric. Uh, Also never bought anything of value from this art dealer. Was it because he didn't have the money? Was it because the pieces he uh, uh, had weren't really his? Uh, He'll later buy some paintings using the money of the biggest victim of Clark Rockefeller, maybe next to his future daughter, the woman who would become his wife. At the St. Thomas Church, Clark met Julia Boss, the smart, stylish, attractive woman who uh, uh, was the twin sister of an even smarter woman named Sandra, who was attending Harvard Business School. Julia and Sandra had grown up in Seattle in a nice two-story Cape Cod house, paid for by their father who was a Cape Cod Cod style house uh, paid for by their father, who was a Boeing engineer. And these twin sisters were competitive. As seniors at Blanchett High, they were the only two sibling merit scholars, each pushing the other. As small kids, they'd always found ways to turn whatever imaginary game they were playing into a competition so someone could win. They competed to sell the most Girl Scout cookies as kids. As adults, the competition moved to possessions. Who bought the best and most expensive Hermes scarf or Christian Louboutin shoes? Who had the best degree, the best job? After graduating from Yale, Julie worked as an assistant to the publisher at Algonquin Books and was engaged to be married to a fellow Yaley from an upper middle class family in Coral Gables, Florida. Sandra, meanwhile, worked in an elite private equity firm, uh, then in a debt market with Merrill Lynch. People remembered her as sharp, but shy, eager for success, but a little socially awkward. Uh, Julia, her sister, winning in the romance department now, but then Clark shows up. Uh, Clark hears of Sandra through Julia, gets uh, her to set them up on a date. Now, not just any date. He wants to throw Sandra a party. Uh, Clark Rockefeller throws this party for Sandra in 1993. Not just any party, a clue-themed party based on the board game. At this party, the players are guests at a mansion trying to figure out who killed Mr. Body, the millionaire host. Uh, Rockefeller instructed each guest to come costumed as a character from the game and to tell the doorman they're there to see Mr. Body. Rockefeller plays the role of Professor Plum, a Harvard archaeologist. Sandra comes as Miss Scarlet, femme fatale Hollywood actress, and the two are immediately attracted to one another. He was, she told friends, the brightest man she'd ever met. He knew the works of the obscure 20th century novelist she loved, uh, spoke several languages fluently, including Klingon, the language of the Star Trek warrior race. Yes, Trekkie nerds, sometimes speaking Klingon can actually help you get laid. Not often, I imagine, but sometimes. Uh, Clark was charming, witty, worldly. He told Sandra that he'd been raised very rich, but then sadly, his dad's money had been wiped out by a terrible and unfair lawsuit. Sandra told him she didn't care that he didn't uh, have money anymore. She would make plenty for the both of them. She actually liked the fact that he seemed unmaterialistic, and she loved that he worked so hard to alleviate third world poverty, a big plus. I mean, he didn't do that, but she loved that he told her that he did that. And their relationship went along swimmingly. The following year, Clark asked Sandra to marry him at the Episcopal Church in Islesboro, Maine, in the summer of 1994. Islesboro, a very hoity-toity little island community full of more second homes than primary homes. Very Thirst and Powell III, darling. Simply splendid, magnificent even. You simply must go there. Your life cannot be complete without it, love. Uh, Sandra says yes. They announce their engagement with a Stilton and Sherry party at Clark's apartment. Stilton, a very expensive English blue cheese, $400 or more per pound. Nothing but the best blue b- cheese for Clark the Blue Blood, darling. On January 13th, 1995, the NBC, uh, NBC show Unsolved Mysteries, which averaged 9 million viewers per week at the time, aired a segment on the discovery of the bones of John Sohus underground on his late mother's former property. Uh-oh. Uh, May of 1994, the bones had been found buried in the backyard of the couple's former property, not far from Dee Dee's guest house. Uh, Sohus' family members said the bones matched John's general description but since Sohus had been adopted, there was no way to compare his DNA against that of biological family members and arrive at a conclusive identity. Uh, forensic evidence showed that the victim had been struck in the head twice with a rounded blunt object and then stabbed six times. And then the body had been cut into three parts. The segment told of Dee's delusions, John's mysterious job offer, and of the strange boarder who lived in the guest house, one Christopher Chichester. Trying to think of Robert. how Robert Stack, the program closed with a photo of Chichester, noting that he happened to be known as Christopher Crowe, the man who tried to hawk John's truck, and he sometimes went by Christopher Mountbatten. And also Christian Gerhard Strider, native of Germany. Uh, dude snuck another alias in there with a few people. Mr. Mountbatten. The manhunt for Gerhard Strider was on, but the identity had long ago disappeared, and no one connected Gerhard Strider to Clark. Not yet. I uh, wonder if Clark happened to see that episode, though. Uh, Clark and Sandra get married in Nantucket in 1995. Clark's parents were coming, he told her, uh, or weren't coming, excuse me, he told her, because they were dead. But other Rockefellers for sure were coming. They simply must come, darling. They wouldn't miss such a splendid affair, love, not for all the world. But then at the last minute, he said that there was a problem and that he had to uninvite them. But don't worry, uh, you know, they'll work it out. uh, Not their first little tiff love. And everyone will certainly meet up in the future. Uh, It'll be motherfucking splendid. Uh, His dog, Yates, named for the British novelist uh, Edmund Hodgson Yates, served as the best dog. Sandra later thought it odd that he didn't have a best man or any old friends come to the wedding. But, you know, he had trust issues from when he used to have a lot of money and everyone wanted it, poor guy. Sandra uh, had met no friends, no family, no coworkers even, who helped him do all that saving the third world shit before they got married. How could she ignore all these red flags? Because he was charming as fuck. He had a story for every concern. His explanations, you know, look stupid in their totality when you zoom out and look at everything. But from moment to moment, he always made everything seem so plausible. Even the marital paperwork part. Sandra had signed all the necessary marriage documents and trusting the task of filing them to her husband, but then he never did that. This will help Sandra uh, a lot when it comes to their divorce later because they were never actually legally married. Uh, nevertheless, they settled into married life in New York and Nantucket. Uh, Rockefeller ran Asterix, LLP, advising third-world countries on their finances, in theory. That's what he told Sandra. Uh, He didn't make any money at this job, he explained, because the nations were dirt poor, and charging them a consulting fee would be, you know, evil beneath him. She found that endearing. What a wonderful man he was. After graduating from Harvard Business School, Sandra accepted a position at McKinsey & Company, an ultra-discreet global consulting firm which advises the world's leading businesses, governments, and institutions, and whose staff has included former CIA operatives. Everything seemed to be good. In the marriage, Sandra was busy uh, moving up the McKinsey ladder, leading the company's work for New York's uh, Senator Charles Schumer, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, regarding the global competitiveness of New York and U.S. finance services. Uh, She'll become partner in 2000 and senior partner in 2004. And meanwhile, Clark is, uh, you know, saving the world. Uh, Though Sandra later denied using her husband's name for any kind of leverage, friends did remember later how proud she was to be married to a Rockefeller. She acted like she didn't care, but they could sense it was really important to her. All right, She was winning. Her sister had not married into uh, American blue blood. She had the couple's apartment at 55th Street and 6th Avenue became a showcase for her expensive art paid for with Sandra's money. She's making a solid six figures. Uh, we celebrated our first art purchase, a large painting by Rothko on a cold, wet New York City afternoon. Sandra wrote for an art news article. The Rockefellers kept uh, collecting works by Robert Motherwell, Clifford Still, Piet Mondrian and, of course, more Mark Rothko's. Uh, Rothko, uh, was in a, was an was a Latvian born, but primarily raised in America, uh, abstract painter who died in 1970 at the age of 66, mostly known for color field works, big rectangular blocks of rich colors. He painted the kind of shit that frankly, uh, a lot of people, people like myself, uh, admittedly not that educated in the arts will make fun of when making fun of quote, modern art. I mean, I can appreciate the brilliance of, uh, of a Da Vinci right? Because his painting still seems so alive all these years later, so many details captured so beautifully. I see that and I think that takes talent. I sure as fuck couldn't paint that, but I see a Rothko and honestly, right or wrong, I think, yeah, I could do that. I could fucking nail that. I, I could paint big rectangles on a canvas. Uh, give me about an hour. No art class needed. And I know there's more to it than that, but I'm also not surprised that this is the kind of shit that, uh, that Clark liked, right? These kind of paintings... When the art world falls all over themselves to talk about how brilliant they are, it does often read like a big con to me because, you know, come on, sometimes it is. All art is subjective, but some is way more subjective than other art. Uh, Like, you know, holy shit, you fucking did it. This painting has no perspective, no carefully observed details, not even the creation of hidden shapes and meanings. It's just big monochromatic rectangles. How impressive. You're the talk of the town. You just bullshitted your way in, just like Clark. And sorry if you're a big Roscoe fan. Uh, For me, the similarity is striking, right? He probably saw some of himself in works like these. And it was just easy for him to bullshit about stuff like this. Uh, Clark and Sander would go out to dinner often at the finest, most exclusive restaurants, always beginning with cocktails at one of uh, Rockefeller's clubs, usually the Lotos, The Tony Literary Club, housed in a Vanderbilt mansion, whose membership directory listed Clark's name just below that of billionaire philanthropist Lawrence Rockefeller, pulled that off. How did that happen? Well, he spent a lot of time at the right places and he volunteered to help with whatever. He had a lot of flexibility thanks to not having a real job, right? Just a pretend job. And now he has Sandra's money for membership fees. Uh, She's making a few hundred thousand dollars a year and it's getting, you know, increasing year to year. The two will have dinner at clubs like the Metropolitan on East 60th street, uh, founded by JP Morgan, where the staff always greeted their host with a chorus of good evening, Mr. Rockefeller. One time, uh, dining with friends, uh, the friend looked out the window and said, Oh, Clark, you can see the Rockefeller Center from here. And Clark literally reached into his pocket, pulled out a key and said, Yes, I have a key right here. Ah, it's too much, dude. Too much. You don't just get a key to the Rockefeller Center for being a Rockefeller. That was fucking weird. Of course, darling. Uh, We simply must sneak in for drinks one night. It'll be splendid. Uh, We'll go to the secret bar on the rooftop only for Rockefellers and their friends. I have a key for that as well. And, of course, they know me, darling. Everyone who's anyone knows a Rockefeller. Uh, The friend smelled bullshit, thinking that there was no fucking way there's just one key to the Rockefeller Center, because that's crazy. Uh, Another time, Clark told a friend uh, who was fretting over unpaid federal taxes that he could hook him up with a private line belonging to George, as in the the president. Uh, He told all kinds of stories. He had investments suddenly in Mexican aerospace technology. He suggested to friends that he had uh, uh, some interest in buying outright a national magazine, maybe the Atlantic. Uh, as her position with Mackenzie grew, Sandra was away from her husband more and more, which left him with plenty of time to network and just, you know, continue to be this real life Thurston Howell Third weirdo. He would often walk his dog Yates in Central Park, where he would later say that uh, his dog was very much in love with Amelia, Henry Kissinger's dog. Yes, love, uh, Yates is adorable even Ophelia uh, Henry Kissinger's dog thinks so the two had quite the splendid summit romance you know talk of the town this guy's such a fucking tool uh one day he crossed paths with uh, Broadway producer Jeffrey Richards they get to talking and Richards uh tells him he's produced a new play by David Ives who had written all in the timing and Rockefeller exclaimed I've seen that play six times he hadn't uh he then hinted that he might like to become a backer on Ives's uh, next play he won't But Richards uh, arranges to meet with his new potential investor and Ives, after which Clark Rockefeller offers the playwright a ride on his private jet. Uh, But the jet will not materialize because he doesn't fucking have a jet. He also says he's going to invest in this new play, which he won't because he doesn't have the money to back it. He just fucking wanted to feel important. He loved it. He loved to have these two guys kiss his ass at some private club in front of other members so he could look important. So others would think he was important. What a fucking weird way to live. Imagine knowing that you have no private jet, no ability to access a private jet. You can't fund some theatrical production in Manhattan. And you're not a fucking Rockefeller. <laughs> but you take a noted playwright and a Broadway uh, you know, producer out to lunch to hear a sales pitch for a project you're not actually interested in. How sick to get all these guys, uh, you know, to get these guys all excited. Just, yes, of course, loves. Uh, we'll have to go big with the budget. Really get some star power for the leads. No expenses spared with the set design, darlings. We simply must pour piles of moolah into ads. It will be the most grandest, glorious production ever. It must be. And these guys leave lunch thinking, wow, this could be big. This could really be huge for us. But then, you know, Rock, uh, you know, Clark leaves lunch without any intention of even necessarily returning their phone calls. He got what he wanted. Got to feel important at their expense. But who cares? You know, they're not him, so fuck them. Uh, Clark told others that he regularly invited friends to run their dogs at Pocantano Hills. I don't know, some storied 3,400-acre Rockefeller estate near Tarrytown, New York. Uh, One friend connected Rockefeller to the artist William Quigley, whose work had been collected by politicians, entertainers, and entrepreneurs. Uh, This dude is good. Some of his shit is incredible. Uh, Shows a lot of technical skill to me. But also, uh, some of his works are just a bunch of slashes of color on canvas. And I bet Clark liked that stuff. Uh, Within a month, Quigley was summoned to Rockefeller's apartment, where he was staggered by Clark's collection of modern art. Clark promptly promised to buy some of Quigley's paintings, I wanted to introduce him to a great friend of his, Larry Gagosian, one of the world's foremost art dealers. First, however, came a series of lunches and dinners, usually at the uh, Lotos or Lotos Club, that uh, literary club, you know, uh place Mark Twain, a lifelong member and frequent guest, called the Ace of Clubs. Here, Clark would exclaim, "Shit!" in front of Quigley, like, "Let's have the oysters, Rockefeller." <laughs> And once when a a dish of oysters baked in spinach arrived, he said in his East Coast lockjaw, Quigley, do you know why they call these oysters Rockefeller? The artist was like, no, because they're green. (laughs) Such wit. (sighs) Fuck it. I want this guy so fucking punchable. Uh, Quigley later remembered Clark's backstory changing from meeting to meeting. At one point, he said his profession was uh, advising foreign governments on how much money to print He's an expert in international economies now. Uh, at the end of many of a meal of beef ribs and succotash at one of the many clubs he frequented, Rockefeller would exclaim, Isn't this grand? And if it was an extra grand evening, he would add, I swear to God, this is the exact quote It's a peach Melbourne night. I want to pick this guy up and throw him off the fucking roof of one of these buildings. God damn it. Simply grand, darling. We're having a peach Melbourne night. Uh, Finally, Rockefeller called the Gagosian Gallery and said he wanted to buy it Quigley. Tomorrow, Sandy and I will go to Gagosian in New York and look at your portfolio. Rockefeller wrote an email to Quigley on October 11th, uh, 1998. We will take along a very important person from the Whitney Museum and we will place an order for 12 paintings. This operation should impress Gagosian quite a bit. Uh, Rockefeller repeatedly assured Quigley that price didn't matter when he purchased art, saying he gave a blank check, never told his banker to tell him how much he'd paid. What a cool guy. Uh, However, neither Rockefeller nor the Whitney Museum ever bought a Quigley painting from Gagosian. Uh, Rockefeller did acquire three Quigley works in his life, bought one from the artist at a discount, uh, got one as a gift for free, and picked up a a third at an estate sale for a nominal sum. So he probably swindled that person. Uh, Everything seemed to be going so well for this motherfucker. He's living his dream life. Sandra's money and his bullshit has him hobnobbing in the social circles he's long dreamt of. But then in early 2000, tired, I imagine, of a lot of this uh, dumb fuck stories not checking out, Sandra leaves him. She's had, she had to have had uh, concerns. Uh, when they did taxes, Clark filed her as a single person. He told her tax preparer that they were siblings because they didn't have an actual marriage license. Uh, he didn't want authorities to know where Christian Carl uh, Strider was, I'm guessing, because the new authorities might want to talk to him uh, about a pair of disappearances and at least one murder back in California. His fantasy is at risk of crumbling now. But the 39-year-old is able to woo Sandra back and quickly gets her pregnant. I simply must come inside you, darling. It'll be grand. Let's, let's make a peach melba cream pie, love. Can you imagine being dirty talked to <laughs> by this motherfucker? By some guy who speaks like Thurston Howell from Gilligan's Island? How do you like it when I smack that ass, darling? I simply must slap your pussy too, love. It'll be grand. I'm going to tie you up and have my way with your your ass, my lady. I'm going to lick it, rub lotion all around it, love. Uh, Then I simply must fuck it. I must. It'll be grand. And when you come and you're going to come so hard, love, especially when I push the wand on your marvelous clit, darling, I'm going to stick my dick in a bowl of peach melba. Lucifina liked that joke, I think. Uh, Now determined to work things out for their child, Sandra stays. Not long after this, one day, Clark comes home to say he'd had an unpleasant altercation with a woman in Central Park while walking the uh, the dog. Soon, the police come to the apartment to speak with Rockefeller privately about the incident. I wonder, did this woman uh, figure out who he really was? Maybe someone from his past catching up with him? someone he'd fucked over? Spooked, perhaps, Clark now declares that he doesn't want to live in Manhattan anymore. His new idea? New Hampshire. Why suddenly uh, want to give up the uh, cool life he made for himself in New York City? Well, I have to think, uh, you know, he was about to be exposed new hampshire he again chooses to surround himself with wealth and privilege he and sandra moved to cornish new hampshire uh, population only 1616 in 2020 uh, but a pretty famous place place made famous by the 19th century american sculptor augustus saint gaudens and uh, such part-time residents as artist maxfield parish uh, former president woodrow wilson whose cornish home was once considered his summer white house located at the southern end of new hampshire's upper valley cornish has a thriving residential community that encompasses old colonial style homes and elegant estates spanning acreages of uh, lush, verdant hills and lake shores. He told some friends that he'd chosen Cornish because of its location, halfway between Sandra's job, uh, currently headquartered in Boston, and his company in Canada. Wait, what? Yes, now he uh, owns a fucking Canadian company, okay? Uh, he uh, tells people he owns a company that makes uh, rockets, uh, space shuttles, satellites, or something, maybe some jet engines. <laughs> How is he not worried that this shit would make its way back to his wife who knew this wasn't true on uh, Cornish Sandra, who uh, legally I guess does keep her name. Um, uh, sorry. I don't know why I added that, but I, it seems to keep her name boss. Uh, she pays Sandra boss pays $750,000 for Doveridge, the former estate of the famous U S jurist Leonard hand and artist Thomas and Maria doing Rockefeller immediately embarks on an extensive restoration, taking it down to the studs, digging up the backyard for a swimming pool, keeps his art in storage tubes and a collection of Rockefeller memorabilia in his upstairs office, all of which he liked to to show off to visitors. When a woman named Alma Gilbert, the director of the Cornish Colony Museum, wants to include pictures of Doveridge in a book about homes and gardens in the area, Rockefeller objects, sends her an email that says, I work for the US Defense Department and I cannot have it known where I live. Well, he didn't work for them, but uh, was he worried about being named in some local book Uh, because it could lead to him being exposed? Someone looking for him might be able to find him uh rockefeller made himself known in town he would grandly ride through the village streets on a segway wearing a yale baseball cap or be uh driven by a chauffeur in this uh <laughs> like, you know fancy cars with tinted windows that were like bulletproof he parked someone he claimed was a 21 car collection including a number of antiques on his 25 acre property he has an old police car he'd uh bought at auction on whose sides he stenciled doveridge security and then parked at the entrance to their estate um yeah, he yeah, chauffeured around town again, like I said, armored Cadillac. Uh, his his uh, name, uh, <laughs> he name drops uh, guests uh, he entertained supposedly, including like German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, uh, astrophysicist Stephen Hawking. These people didn't fucking go there. Uh, then on May 24, 2001, Clark gets something real in his life. Sander gives birth. A friend drove Clark and Sander to uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Uh, where and he's no longer driving this time i guess just again trying to keep his identity from being revealed uh where ray storo mills rockefeller is born the one person he didn't seem interested in cheating or conning other than giving a fake name uh the one person he won't be willing to abandon uh he nicknames her snooks it's simply splendid darling. it's snooks Uh, and fake clark will happily live with real sandra and real snooks in cornish for uh, about five more years Clark hangs out in a few clubs in the area, raises Snooks, lies to everyone about doing all sorts of shit, knowing all sorts of important people. But then the Cornish charade ends in 2006 when Snooks turns five and is ready to enter kindergarten. Clark wants to homeschool her, but Sandra insists that Snooks needs to be around other children. Uh, Rockefeller starts telling friends he can get her in Dispense, the private girls' school in New York with uh, one phone call. Doesn't get her in Dispense, but does get her accepted at the prestigious Southfield School for Girls in Boston which shares a campus with Dexter, the boys' school where uh, John F. Kennedy went to school at one point. And Boston's where they move. In the fall of 2006, Sandra pays a reported $2.7 million for a townhouse in Boston on Pickney Street, near where then-Senator John Kerry had a house. In Boston, Rockefeller continues to be a stay-at-home dad to other parents at his daughter's school, though. Uh, he says he's able to become the stay-at-home dad because he sold his Canadian jet propulsion company to Boeing for a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah i mean that makes sense you know you get to uh chill out and just be with the kid after you sell a company for a billion dollars i mean you deserve it you'll start a new company a few years later sell that for another bill in a decade or so whatever. uh clark also talked a lot about how he's going to donate a planetarium to the school which of course never happens uh every morning he'll walk snooks to the bus stop uh stop right outside of the bar that was uh, uh where the famous sitcom cheers was supposedly uh set so they used exterior shots of this location uh, uh for that show as soon as Snooks was safely on the bus, Clark would then stroll down the street to a Starbucks where he soon found a new group of marks who called themselves Cafe Society, a group of Beacon Hill lawyers, Harvard researchers, celebrated, uh, uh, celebrated architect, and other successful business people. Uh, when they saw him around, they didn't interact with him until he appeared one day huffing and puffing. They asked him what he was up to, said he just pushed an armoire up the uh, fifth floor of his house, up to the fifth floor. Clever little drop, right? Now everyone knows he has a five-story house in the area. He's got money. The Starbucks group also learns very soon that he's a Rockefeller as well as the director of the ultra private Algonquin club down the street to which he soon invites his newfound circle for breakfast uh, at the club. They see that his name is on the wall. He is fucking good at this. He designs websites for free for people to club to ingratiate himself. You know, uh, obviously tosses around the Rockefeller name uh, impresses many with random knowledge and talents. He once plays nine recordings of Cole Porter's from this moment on for a group to see which of them could identify various vocalists. He's the only person any of them knew who could play the didgeridoo. Of course I play the didgeridoo, love. Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, he spent some of his free time at the Boston uh, Athenaeum, one of the oldest and most exclusive private libraries in America, to which he gained membership to the intervention of his neighbor, John Sears, Harvard Law graduate, former Suffolk County sheriff. On Saturday mornings, uh, even when he'd been out late the night before, he would make it his practice to read to children at the uh, Athenaeum. And uh, he was an excellent reader who could perform a number of accents. He could recite pieces from memory, including long poems. Almost every day, he would take Snooks to the uh, Athenaeum and read to her, and she could read by the time she was two. When a neighbor suggested that Clark bring Snooks over for a playdate once, she said, Oh, no, I don't do playdates. Playdates are for of children. <laughs> uh, the first time she met one of the neighbors, she said, What's your name? And he said, My name's Elwood Heedley. And she said, Hmm, let me see. E L W O O D h-e-a-d-l-e-y fucking nailed it she's five years old uh do feel terrible for little snooks in this story clark doted on her he sounds like he was a great dad to her but his fatherhood was built on a stack of lies uh the next year there was a picture of snooks on the cover of the beacon hill times a photograph of her with the diagram she'd made she'd drawn the entire periodic table of elements uh on the corner of charles and beacon streets right on the sidewalk as well Father and daughter would stroll through Beacon Hill, dine together, read books for hours on end. It seemed like the father and daughter were equally obsessed with one another. I love you too much, daddy, Snooks would often say. Uh, Those two got along great, but he wasn't getting along well with Sandra again now. Something was happening behind the scenes. Maybe she finally realizes she has been lied to big time for years about fucking everything. Um, Fake divorce, a real custody battle are about to follow. Both will move out of their townhouse for a bit. Uh, Sandra lives at the Boston Ritz. Rockefeller moves in with some European friends a few blocks away. Snooks shuttles back and forth between the two. Uh, Clark is now almost entirely cut off from his source of income, his wife, who is making more money than ever. She's been sprinting up the corporate ladder. Uh, Clark asks people to buy back some antique cars he sold uh, uh, them. He tries to sell his art, but doesn't seem to be able to. Maybe it's uh, because it's not real uh, art. It's forgeries or something. He'll later have to resign from the Algonquin Club in 2008, and that'll really sting. It will not be splendid, darling. It will not be grand love. Uh, he told his friends that his wife had taken all his money and that she had only married him because he was a Rockefeller. He said he was going to interview every high-powered attorney in Boston, excuse me, so that Sandy would not be able to hire any of them because of, it would be a conflict of interest. But that wouldn't prevent her from getting a, a really good lawyer. And once the divorce was underway, Sandra's father, William Boss, finally fucking decides to investigate his son-in-law. Since he and other members of the family had come to suspect that Clark was either siphoning off money from Sandra or hiding Rockefeller wealth from her. First, Boss goes on to his Wikipedia to check out Rockefeller's late mom, Ann Carter, former child star, right, who supposedly died in a car wreck. Can't believe it took someone this long to do this. According to Wikipedia, of course, Ann, still very much alive. Ann never had a son named Clark. It was all right there the whole time, just waiting to be revealed. Uh, The deeper boss dug, the more inconsistencies he found. He reported them all to Sandra, who then hired a private investigator who found out who the fuck her husband really was. Rockefeller, unwilling to risk exposing his past and unable unable to produce documentation to prove his current identity, quickly agrees to custody terms with uh, Sandra in 2007. Uh, And and because he'll do this, she'll agree not to expose him as being Christopher Chichester. Sandra gets nearly everything, their historic house, historic church they bought in Cornish, uh, the townhouse in Beacon Hill, full custody of Snooks. A judge approves her request to take their daughter uh, with her to London to live where she has a new job. She moves to the Knightsbridge district of the city. Rockefeller's parental visits are limited to only three visits a year, one day each with supervision. Damn. And return Clark gets uh, an $800,000 basically payoff, two cars, her engagement ring, and randomly address that he had given to her. uh, And then, you know, no investigation further into his past. No exposure. Sandra just wanted him to go the fuck away. Uh, he converts at least 300,000 dollars into South African gold coins. And you know what, and I, and I actually added some outside of my notes about uh, her re- knowing that she was uh, that he was Christopher Chichester. I actually don't think that's true. So let me retract that now. Um I just uh I got caught up in the excitement of this <laughs> narrative and uh, added that detail which I shouldn't have done because it's not in the notes and I don't the private investigator I don't think made it all the way to connect him to this uh this person who is possibly involved in a murder in California. I think he um based on what I interpret from the sources Got close. He panicked and was like, okay, just, just please can we do this and then I'll go away. So now he converts after he goes away uh, at least $300,000 of the money she gave him into South African gold coins called uh, uh, Krugerrands and then into gold US coins keeping the rest in cash. So I'm guessing he's moving this money into this gold and that gold and cash to keep it from being traced. Uh, now early 2008, Clark's bouncing back and forth between Boston and New York City, uh, busy trying to line up a new sugar mama. In May of 2008, he meets Roxanne West, a young woman from a West Texas oil family who traveled between New York and Texas frequently. They met at a party at the Lawrence uh, Steigrad Fine Arts Gallery on East 69th Street in New York. He told her he was 40, a Yale graduate, a single parent with a seven-year-old daughter produced by a surrogate mother. Well, no, he's 47, never went to Yale, not a single parent. Uh, Told her he was on his way to China on a business trip for his work now as a nuclear physicist. (laughs) Ha! He goes so big on these lies. And he's just come from uh, giving his daughter's class a one hour tour uh, uh, of the Metrop- Metropolitan Museum of Art. She accepts his invitation to lunch the next day, where his stories get even wilder. And then after which, he begins sending her a flurry of text messages. Here are some of these exact text message quotes Problem. I cannot get you out of my head. What to do? Ah. Uh, just gazed at Saturn for the last 10 minutes. Viewing excellent tonight in Brookline. Wish you could see this. Wish I could see you. This one's my favorite. <laughs> in a submarine. Crowded. Strange. Thought of you a minute ago. The fuck? And then one more. Sipping strange tropical drinks on Nantucket now. Would love to see you. This coming week, perhaps? Go to Central Park and kiss? Sound good? The desperate hard push does not work for Roxanne. She's fucking creeped out. She thinks this guy is full of shit and she cuts ties. He went way too far with a submarine and <laughs> text. Why the fuck would you be in a submarine? And how are you sending the text from a submarine? Back in 2008. The technology wasn't possible then. If you're going to go that far, might as well even (laughs) go farther. Thinking of you, love, Uh, sending this from my personal biodome on Mars. The red planet is simply splendid, darling. You simply must accompany me on my next trip. We'll go for a ride on the rover to watch the sunset. It is magnificent, love. Must be going now. My robot assistant, Alfred, simply insists I board the rocket. Uh, The life of Clark Rockefeller seems to have run its course now. More and more people start to distance himself from him. He's becoming known to more and more as someone who is just epically full of shit. Uh, Christian Gerhardt's rider needs a new mask to wear, but first he wants to get his, wants to get his daughter Snooks back. July 27th, 2008. It's a sunny day in Boston. Dressed in khakis and a blue Lacoste t-shirt, or shirt, uh, collared shirt, not t-shirt, Clark is carrying Snooks on his shoulders, walking towards Boston Common, where they're going to ride the swan boats in the public garden. It'll be grand. It'll be peach melba. Uh, good morning, Mr. Rockefeller. Someone greets him. A social worker mandated by the court to supervise visits is tagging along behind he and his daughter for, you know, one of their very few visits. As they approach Marlboro Street, a tree-lined avenue near where former Senator Ted Kennedy has a house, a black SUV limousine quickly cruises over to the curb. Rockefeller had told the driver, Daryl Hopkins, that he and Snooks had a lunch date in Newport, Rhode Island with a senator's son, and that he might need help getting rid of a real clingy friend, aka the social worker, who might try to get into the limo, but do not let him get in. Rockefeller paid three thousand dollars for the trip. Told the driver under no circumstances was a friend supposed to come along for the ride. So the driver wasn't surprised as he looked in his rearview mirror to see Rockefeller with Snooks on his shoulders and a clingy sort of guy right behind him. Probably was a little bit surprised when Rockefeller pushed that dude to the ground, picked up his daughter, yanked the car door open, pushed the kid into the limo so fast she hit her head on the door frame, started crying. "I really whacked my head, Daddy," she said. But Clark, not paying attention, he just shouts, "Go, go!" The driver steps on the gas, drags a social worker who had grabbed hold of the back door handle several yards before he lets go, falls onto the pavement. Within minutes, according to Rockefeller's indictment, he told the driver to pull over. Then after being let out, the driver had to have been thinking, what the fuck did I get myself into? He hails a cab, explains to the limo driver he wants to take his daughter to Massachusetts General Hospital in order to make sure that the bump on her head is not something serious. He instructs the limo driver, just wait for him in this nearby parking lot. I'll be back soon. The driver does as he's told, waits approximately two hours before leaving when Rockefeller never shows up. Rockefeller took the taxi not to the hospital, of course, but to the Boston Sailing Center, where one of his many female friends was waiting for him there. She had agreed to drive him to New York in her white Lexus for 500 bucks. Rockefeller told her that he and Snooks had to catch a train that would get them to a boat launch on Long Island by 8 p.m. He really planned all this out. Soon after they arrived in Manhattan, they get stuck in traffic near Grand uh, Grand Central Terminal. Out of nowhere, Rockefeller sweeps up his daughter, throws an envelope full of cash into the front seat, takes off out of the car. The surprised woman's cell phone rings a few minutes later. It was a friend calling, asking if she'd seen the Amber Alert concerning Clark Rockefeller's Rockefeller's abduction of his daughter. She'd been used. Now she realizes that she'd been fooled into providing transportation for what the Boston District Attorney later charges a custodial kidnapping but she has no idea where Clark and Snooks have run off to. they vanished. At the same time, Boston police are now entering Clark Rockefeller's name into national databases and finding nothing. Back in Boston, at a suite at the Four Seasons Hotel, Sandra Boss is told the unfortunate news. Can you please give us his driver's license number? An officer asks her. She says he doesn't have one. Do you know if Clark has a social security number? She tells him no. Is he on your tax returns? No. How crazy. I feel bad for her. She must have felt so embarrassed by how this looked. Clark had fed her so much bullshit that now seemed so blatantly ridiculous. Clark's credit cards are all under her accounts. His cell phone number was under the name of a friend. To each of the investigators' questions about her ex-husband's identification papers, boss had to say she had no idea. After turning up nothing in the ID department, investigators frantically start retracing Clark's last moves, and they catch a lucky break. The night before he'd fled, he'd had a glass of wine at a friend's house. When they arrived there later on July 27th, just hours after the kidnapping, the friend still hadn't washed the glass. So luckily, Clark's semen was still inside of it. One of his many eccentricities was coming inside a glass of wine after he drank it. Of course not, love. No, that's simply ridiculous. No, they lifted fingerprints uh, from the glass, sent them off to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. Following day, July 28th, the case falls to Special Agent Noreen Gleason, a tough, blonde 17-year veteran of the FBI assigned to the Boston field office. Her first call is to the Rockefeller family. She said, they said, under no circumstance is there a link. We are not connected. For five days, Noreen and her team of FBI agents tried to hunt whoever the fuck Clark really is and his daughter down, fearing that the worst had already happened, that Clark was operating on some kind of a logic of, if I can't have her, nobody can, and then he may have killed her. They soon unraveled Rockefeller's elaborate escape plan. He had told many of his rich friends, uh, some supposed upcoming destination, always different, always a lie. Told one he was sailing to Peru informed others he was going to alaska uh others the turks and caicos others the bahamas agents have no fucking clue where he's really gone while the kidnappers prints are being analyzed the bureau uh, in hopes that someone might recognize him release pictures of clark to the media and now a lifetime of carefully constructed identities starts emerging agents realize that some people know him as chris gerhardt university of wisconsin film student others know him or knew him as christopher chichester descendant of british royalty who had claimed uh, that uh, to the residence of a wealthy LA suburb in the 1980s, uh, that he was this you know big uh, fucking uh, royal guy only to vanish after being sought for questioning in a disappearance of a California couple. Others remember him as Christopher C. Crow, a TV producer who had worked for at least three Wall Street investment firms in the late 80s before suddenly vanishing for four years. Most knew him as Clark Rockefeller, a Boston socialite whose friends included important artists, writers, producers, physicians, financiers, and members of prestigious private clubs. And then the results of the prints come back from the lab and the alleged kidnapper is none of these people. It's Christian Karl Gerhard Strider, a 47-year-old German immigrant who had come to America as a student in 1978 and who had disappeared into a complicated existence that the Boston District Attorney would call the longest con I've seen in my professional career. Investigators then get another bigger break. A real estate agent in Baltimore recognized Rockefeller's picture on television and called the FBI. The agent said he just sold a guy, this guy, a carriage house on Ploy Street in Baltimore for $432,000. The man paid for it uh, the previous week with the cashier's check. The guy looked a lot like the wanted posters, uh, but identified himself as Chip Smith. Said his daughter was Muffy. Of course. Oh, this is my daughter, Muffy. Uh, he said he was a single dad, a ship captain, uh, and had relocated from Chile. Noreen Gleason gets the news in Boston at 1 a.m. on August 2nd, just a little less than six days past uh, when, uh, you know, the, the girl was taken. After, and an hour later, a team of investigators has surrounded the house on Ploy Street. Through the windows, they can see uh, an open case of sherry, of course, and paintings leaning against the walls. But they detect no movement inside. They start worrying that Clark had already fled. But a phone call will, still, uh, will soon reveal he's still at home. Investigators had previously discovered Rockefeller's yacht, a run-down 26-foot stiletto cat- catamaran, which he kept docked in a Baltimore marina two miles away. Through a window of the boat, they were able to see a file labeled Chip Smith. Presumably, uh, the plans for the new identity he was setting up and they knew they had their man. So then they got the manager of the marina to call Rockefeller on his cell phone, telling him his boat was taken on water. Almost immediately, movement is now detected in the Ploy Street house and then Rockefeller, or excuse me, then Clark walks outside. Hey, Clark. A plane's Clothes agent uh, calls out and Rockefeller turns around. Where are you going, Clark? Asks the agent. And then Clark responds, I'm headed back to my Martian biodome with Snooks, darling, and I'll get to inform you that my rocket ship only has seats for two. And then he quickly turns around, heads back inside. As officers prepare to storm his new home, he launches on a small rocket out of an opening in the retractable roof. It was simply grand, darling. A real peach Melba kind of escape. Uh, No, uh, what Clark really does is say, I'm going to get a turkey sandwich. That's just you know, calm. Just a guy getting a turkey sandwich, and then rudely, instead of letting the man get his tasty ass sandwich, twenty agents with assault rifles are quickly upon him, pinning him to the ground, while others storm the house and rescue Snooks. Back in Boston, FBI Special Agent Noreen Gleason now calls Sandra Boss to tell her her daughter is safe and her ex-husband is in custody. Sandra, uh, overwhelmed uh, with emotion, literally passes out for a few moments. Uh, with a few weeks uh, within a few weeks of his arrest, on August twenty fourth, two thousand eight. Still claiming to be Clark Rockefeller, Christian gives one of the only interviews he has given from jail. And it is fucking weird. Uh, You can listen to it on YouTube. It's only about five minutes long. There's no video, just audio. He's being held in the prison's general population in a single bunk cell on the seventh floor of the uh, Nashua Street Jail, also known as the Suffolk County Jail in Boston. According to the Boston Globe reporters who conducted the interview, Clark, Christian uh, burst into the room smiling with the cheerful demeanor of a host welcoming guests to his party. Clark Rockefeller, he said, fixing his gaze on a visitor and extending a hand. His nails were still manicured. He wore tasseled loafers with his gray jail-issued scrubs. He turned to another visitor and another, uh, bowing slightly to each. Jesus. Settling into a wooden chair, uh, he said, he wants one thing to be clear. I am Clark Rockefeller. His lawyer, Stephen B. Harones, uh, sat on his side throughout the interview and interjected each time a reporter asked Rockefeller about his life before 1993 or about the murders of John and Linda Soas. Clark would not answer any question of actual interest to anyone, but did seem eager to talk. Peppering his speech with Thurman fucking Howell-esque phrases such as, quite so, and rather. (laughs) He rambled on about the six or seven uh, languages that he speaks, uh, the historical novel about the roots of the Israeli statehood he's writing, and his work as a researcher, as a researcher of anything from physics to social science. He seems very happy, like his current imprisonment is just a small setback, and soon he'll be back to his life of private clubs and cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches, darling, and people thinking he's someone important. He paints himself as a devoted father who read the Tennyson poem The Daisy to his daughter 25 times in a single evening, and who taught her how to read newspapers and scientific journals before she was three. He's unashamed, unapologetic, even wistfully reflects on the six glorious and wonderful days. His quote, he spent with his daughter evading authorities. He said, we had such a wonderful time. It was my six days of being well. It was was like a trance. It was so wonderful. It was so great to be with my daughter again. Uh, Rockefeller insisted that he decided to take his daughter only the day before he picked her up. Though authorities say he'd been planning the kidnapping for months. And he uh, said he bought a house in Baltimore under an assumed name months ago just because he wanted to live quietly. Uh Uh-huh. He also strangely professed to not being able to remember, gosh dang, uh, large chapters of his life. Oh, my heck. I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to remember. He says at one point, I don't lose much thought over it. This is the thing he's done to this day. He has this weird amnesia, uh, where he's, uh, simply forgot anything that's incriminating. He's uh, very, very vague about what jobs he's had saying that he worked as, uh, you know, again, some kind of researcher. Um, you know, he trained, uh, for this by auditing various classes at various universities. He said, my subject was whatever my clients deemed worthy. It could have been literally anything. He said he built a good reputation, but would not give details about the work. Uh, couldn't remember the names of clients. Uh, so how do you get the name that doesn't show up on a government identification form? Clark offered an odd explanation. He said his name had been given to him by some dude named Harry Copeland, whom he described as his godfather from New York who died in the late nineties. And Rockefeller said he insisted that that's what my name is. What the fuck? Uh, when asked if he was actually related to the Rockefeller dynasty or dynasty, he said, as far as I know, I'm not, but I very well could be. This interview was conducted after law enforcement confirmed that his fingerprints belonged to the ones found in uh, Carl, uh, Christian, Carl, Christian Carl Gerhardt Schreiter's immigration file, but he still won't admit that's who he actually is. Uh, on September 3rd, 2008, Gerhardt Schreider is charged with furnishing a false name to a law enforcement officer following an arrest. On September 29th, a Boston court sets bail for Christian, uh, uh, who is still saying he's Clark, at $50 million. A lot of money because he's deemed unsurprisingly a huge flight risk. And, you know, a risk to kidnap his daughter again if he makes bail. His trial is set to begin March 23rd, 2009. On October 2nd, 2008, at a hearing requested by his defense attorney, uh, Stephen Hrones, Hrones requests a reduction for from the $50 million cash bail. Instead, the judge orders the defendant to be held without bail. So take your bail and shove it up your fucking little tea and Seacrest or whatever the sandwiches are called, cucumber... Uh, sandwiches ass. Uh, early November, Rockefeller retains a new set of lawyers, hires the firm of criminal defense attorney Jeffrey Denner, uh, who has this to say regarding his client. There's nothing about this case that takes it out of the ordinary range of a fairly straightforward parental kidnapping allegation. As far as being an alleged person of interest in a potential California criminal prosecution, we don't believe for a second that it's going to result in any criminal conviction or liability for him. And he absolutely denies any wrongdoing whatsoever in connection with his purported stay in California, when asked about various names, his client has assumed over the last three decades, uh, you know, two and change, really just a little over two, uh, Dinner would say he's certainly not the first immigrant who's come to this country and anglicized himself for purposes of adjustment to life here. Nor is there anything illegal about the use of aliases or other names per se, unless there is an indication they were used for some fraudulent purpose, which we do not believe is the case here. Really downplaying the fake lives, uh, dude has led, uh, here. February 13, 2009, Gerhard Strider's attorneys file notice that they intend to use an insanity defense. His lawyers describe him as a dedicated father distraught over his divorce and mentally ill. No, he's fucking mentally ill, but not because of that divorce. Uh, jury selection begins for Clark's kidnapping trial, May 26, 2009. And the trial starts soon after. Gerhard Strider faces charges of kidnapping, giving a false name to police, uh, two assault and battery charges for allegedly pushing the social worker to the ground and then instructing the limo driver to take off as the social worker tried to climb into the car. The defense will claim that Gerhard Schreider is insane, uh, uh, that he believed Snooks was communicating with him, telling him telepathically to rescue her. I wish you could have experienced reading my idea sweet girl's mind, darling. It was simply grand love. Plenty of people, however, will come out of the woodwork to expose who Clark Rockefeller truly was. He wasn't crazy, not in that way. He was just incredibly full of shit. Sandra Boss testified that he literally never held a job during their relationship. Not, never got a fucking single paycheck. All his claims were bullshit. Despite not working, he withheld money and food from her Uh, In the winter, would only heat the part of the house where he slept. Uh, When she pressed him to get a job, she claimed that he replied it would be beneath a Rockefeller. He truly had become a real life Thurston Howe, which is crazy because Thurston was not intended to be an aspirational character. He's a fucking dickhead. The least likable character on Gilligan's Island, intentionally. And even that character worked before he got stranded on the island. Manual labor was beneath Thurston, but not all labor. Uh, Boss told the court today, our boss told the court, uh, sorry, that by the end of their marriage, she earned about $40,000 a week. Damn. But their finances were, you know, controlled by her husband. Uh, and that is wild that she would be that successful work-wise, but at home let Clark run the show. And about $40,000 a week, by the way, is about $2 million a year. She also testified that Clark once convinced her he was a member of the Trilateral Commission, a private organization of prominent citizens who advise governments on international cooperation. Boss said he called it the group, And he would even fly to Texas for bogus meetings. At one point, she said Gerhardt's writer complained that his clients blamed him for the collapse of the Asian markets. But, you know, he never got a single paycheck. Uh, Boss claimed that her husband spent all their money but balked at selling a painting from a collection he claimed was worth a billion dollars. It's not. Uh, I don't think his collection was really worth anything. There's never any talk about like it being sold to like raise money for his defense, nothing. Uh, Clark's defense attorney, Jeffrey Denner, asked her how she, a Harvard Business School graduate, could be duped by Gerhardt's writer for so long. And I love what she says here. She says, there is a difference between intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence. I'm not saying I made a very good choice of a husband. It's pretty obvious that I had a blind spot. All I'm saying is that it's possible that one can be brilliant and amazing in one area of one's life and pretty stupid in another. Well said, Sandra Boss. I would argue that sentiment is uh, true for all of us, right? That all of us, no matter how smart we may be in certain areas, certain aspects of our lives are probably pretty stupid in others, at least in moments. And Sandra is so damn smart in some ways. Uh, A Daily Mail 2015 article on her revealed that she was one of just two women and one of just 10 people who sat on the Bank of England's Board of the Prudential Regulation Authority, a board that is central to the health of the entire British economy. The PRA is the financial service industry's main watchdog in Britain. It's a thousand plus staff uh, policing 1,700 banks, b- uh, building societies, insurers, and investment firms. And Sandra set atop its inner circle from 2014 to 2020. She still works for the Bank of England as a consultant, chairing various important sounding committees. Uh, guessing she's knocking uh, way more uh, back than $2 million a year now. And she controls the money, all of it, while Clark sits in prison. More on how well she's doing is incredible at the end of the timeline. She is fucking killing it. Uh, Testimony in Clark's kidnapping trial ends on June 3rd, 2009. The final witness was Dr. James Chu, a psychiatrist at McLean Hospital, who said he believed that Rockefeller exaggerated his symptoms and was not insane when he kidnapped Snooks. Chu was called by prosecutors to rebut the testimony of two defense mental health experts who said Rockefeller uh, suffered from mental disorders and was legally insane when he took his daughter. Uh, The two defense experts testified that they had diagnosed Gerhard Schreider with delusional disorder, grandiose type, and narcissistic personality disorder. I'm simply incredibly delusional, darling. Splendidly narcissistic. There's simply no way I could be held responsible, love. You must let me plead insanity. You simply must. I'm positive any psychiatric facility I'll stay in will have a a peach melba. Uh, Chu said no way. Clark, uh, you know, not insane. He diagnosed Gerhard Schreider with a mixed personality disorder with narcissistic and antisocial traits, but felt he had exaggerated his symptoms of mental illness and definitely knew right from wrong. So the insanity plea does not fly. June 8th, 2009, closing arguments conclude a Suffolk County jury convicts Gerhard Schreider on June 12th of parental kidnapping and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. In addition to the four to five years uh, for the kidnapping conviction, Gerhard Schreider also sentenced to a two to three year term for the assault to run concurrently with a kidnapping sentence. He was set to serve his terms at the Massachusetts Correctional Institute of Con- in Concord, Massachusetts. He was acquitted of two lesser charges, assault and battery, and providing a false name to police. Though he entered the courtroom with a smirk on his face, he showed little emotion during the reading of the verdict and once mouthed, oh shit, after the second guilty verdict. Yeah, oh shit's right, Clark. And his punishment is just getting started. The legal and media spotlight on Gerhardt's writer has brought renewed attention to the unsolved murder of John Soas. Whose dismembered remains were found buried in the backyard of his former house in San Marino, right in 1994. Well, two years later, uh, after uh, you know Christian is uh, you know sent to uh, prison in Massachusetts in 2009, we're well, now in 2011. Uh, authorities conclusively confirmed for the first time the bones discovered in Dee Dee's backyard do in fact belong to John Soas. They were able to use DNA provided by his biological sister, Lori Moltz. Premature technology of DNA testing back in the 1990s and the fact that uh, Sohus was adopted as a child delayed the definitive identity of the remains, even though investigators had felt confident the bones were John's for quite some time. With a positive ID of John's remains, on March 15, 2011, California authorities filed a complaint at the Alhambra Superior Court seeking the return of Christian Gerhardt's Rider to California to stand trial. We're seeking extradition, said Jane Robeson, spokeswoman for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It has been more than 20 years uh, that the victim's family has had any justice. Gerhardt's Schreiter's lawyer, Jeffrey Denner, who represented him during his 2009 kidnapping trial, said his client is innocent of murder. I have no doubt that Mr. Rockefeller, Gerhard uh isn't even remotely involved in this very, very violent crime. I am surprised that this 26-year-old murder uh, that they didn't have enough to indict him on then. I'm very curious to see what has changed. What do you mean What has changed? they able to get fucking DNA evidence. And I love that he's calling him Rockefeller still. January 24, 2012, Judge Jared Moses of LA County Superior Court rules that Gerhard Schreider must stand trial for the death of Sohas. And the trial begins March of 2013. There'll be three weeks of testimony, 40 witnesses, 160 exhibits. Jurors are shown two plastic book bags found buried with Sohas' remains. One from the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where Gerhard Schreider attended classes. One from uh, USC, where Gerhard Schreider also Uh, audited some classes one juror said that the uh this was the most solid piece of evidence presented to the jury and what an idiot why would he bury his shit with remains and not somewhere else Uh, jurors also heard evidence that Gerhardt's writer was in possession of the Sohas's pickup truck following the murder and uh, Gerhardt's writer spent the trial days taking copious notes but remaining silent what was he writing this is simply not true darling don't let those their lies get you down love your grand clock you're Clark Rockefeller, Blue Blood King, seller of billion-dollar space companies. You are simply splendid. Uh, in his closing arguments, the prosecutor tells jurors that this was not a movie, a book, a TV show, or a docudrama. This case is about two people who lived and died. On April 10th, 2013, Christian, now 52 years old, is found guilty of one murder, the 1985 killing of John Soas. A L.A. jury made up of six men and six women spent about a day deliberating... Uh, over whether you know Gerhard Schreiter killed Sohus or not and buried the remains in the backyard of a San Marino home. Although Deputy District Attorney Habib Balian acknowledged in his closing arguments Monday that he presented no witnesses, no physical evidence, and no motive to connect Christian Gerhard Schreiter to the murder, he spent the last three weeks arguing that the circumstantial evidence was enough to convict him of the crime. Defense Attorney Denner argued that while his client lied about his life and made up lavish stories, he was not a murderer. Defense also argued that it's possible that Linda uh so has, you know killed her husband no trace of her has ever been found probably because Gerhard Schreider killed her i wonder if like maybe he killed uh john at the home and that's why he buried him there but maybe he was able to trick linda into meeting him at some other location where he killed her and then was able to more uh properly hide her remains after he was convicted Gerhard Schreider fired his lawyers represented himself during the sentencing phase that will not work out well for him uh Schreider maintained his innocence during the sentencing hearing saying I want to assert my innocence and that I firmly believe that the victim's wife killed the victim. Uh, but be that as it may, once again, I did not commit the crime of which I stand accused. August 15th, 2013, he is sentenced to 27 years to life for the murder of John Soas. So, so much for uh, self representation. The bespeckled and handcuffed Gerstart Schreider, clad in a blue jail jumpsuit, now files a lengthy motion for a new trial. Does that the same day? I would like to once again reassert my innocence. I would like to definitively state, I did not commit the crime of which I stand convicted. Uh, with, uh, when LA Superior Court Judge George G. Lamelli uh, said evidence and testimony provided no basis for a new trial, the convicted man then withdrew the motion. Before the sentence was imposed, John Sohas sister Ellen told the, court, told the court the verdict gave no closure for the family because Gerhard Strider wouldn't admit to anything. She said to him, why did you kill my brother? What happened to Linda? I believe Linda's dead and I believe you are responsible for her death. John's father died in 2002 without ever knowing what happened to his son. This destroyed him, said Ellen Sohus. He told me that he thought of John every day. He would periodically call me deep in his grief and say, why John? Gerhard Schreider is initially transferred to North North Kern State Prison, September of 2013, before being transferred to Ironwood State Prison in March of 2014. His appeals are denied uh, October 23rd, 2015, and again on January 20th, 2016, exhausting his state appeals. Still has federal appeals pending. In December of 2016, he was transferred to San Quentin State Prison, where last week's uh, dirtbag also sits, Randy Kraft. Uh, with good time credits, he'll be eligible for parole in December of 2029. He'll be 68. He's currently 61. His first parole hearing scheduled for November of 2028. Uh, today, Sandra Boss, now 54, works at the investment management company BlackRock. Little more on her. Uh, Sandra Boss truly has gone full Boss Bitch. She is an impressive meat sack. According to her bio on BlackRock's website, Sandra is BlackRock's Senior Managing Director, Global Head of Investment Stewardship for BlackRock, and a member of BlackRock's Global Executive Committee. She is responsible for leading BlackRock investment stewardship in all its activities as it engages with companies to promote effective governance and create value for clients. Uh, BlackRock is headquartered in Manhattan, where I imagine she must work and is the world's largest asset manager with $10 trillion in assets under management as of January, 2022. 10 trillion. And Sandra leads their investment stewardship, a senior marketing director of trillions of dollars. I have to imagine with stock options, she is now worth well over $100 million, probably several hundred million dollars. Uh, She was making 2 million a year back in 2007, and she has climbed way the fuck up uh, a big corporate ladder since then. Good for her for not letting uh, you know, Clark's deceit wreck her. What didn't kill her seemed to have made her stronger. You know, Fake Clark, while well, I'm sure he fucked her head up and left her with some serious trust issues, for sure didn't break her. Uh, in addition to doing so well, she also looks fantastic. She looks a good 15 years younger than 54, if not more. Very attractive. And I only bring that up because of her relationship to Clark. I have to wonder, how good does it feel For her to be eating the finest foods, working with, I imagine, the uh, world's most premier trainers, nutritionists, estheticians, doctors, et cetera, et cetera, uh, driving or being driven around in the most luxurious vehicles, traveling in private jets, having a badass office with a killer view in Manhattan, maybe several offices around the world with killer views, owning several homes, looking like a million fucking bucks, looking like a couple hundred million fucking bucks, while Clark owns nothing and sits in prison. I love the cliche success is the best revenge. And I believe it. Holy shit. Has she succeeded? Her last name is still the maiden name. Uh, she reverted to, or maybe just kept, you know, when she was with Clark since they were never technically married. Um, you know, can't blame her, uh, for, for keeping that name. I hope she has at least, uh, met some great dudes if that's what she's wanted. Doesn't seem that she is married or maybe she just kept her name again and was married. Doesn't seem that she's married. But I hope that she's at least met some uh, nice dudes, some super handsome, kind, honest dudes with exactly the kind of dicks that she prefers. Perfect length, perfect girth. Scrubbed up, super clean wings. And is, uh, they've used them in ways she prefers, right? That's even more success. More success revenge, right? I hope she's been coming so hard and so loud on satin sheets, hail Lucifina, while that silly fuck Christian quietly jerks off on a prison mattress. That has to sting. And he so deserves it. Sandra has also got to raise her daughter now how she wants Snook's born in May of uh, 2001 is now 21 years old and if mom is sharing some of that wealth with baby girl as parents often do she's fucking loaded still has an insane murderous manipulative shithead of a dad which is terrible but being wealthy probably makes it a little less terrible love that the story has some justice at the end pretty happy ending for some of the main characters all things considered hail Nimrod for that and now let's get out of this timeline good job soldier You've made it back. Barely. And Clark Rockefeller has been sucked. Kind of. Clark Rockefeller also doesn't really exist. Not in any meaningful way. The man behind the name, Christian Karl Gerhard Strider, born to a middle class German family in 1961, journeyed to the U.S. after meeting an American couple on vacation when he's 17, takes the opportunity to reinvent himself, something he seemed to do even as a child. He stayed with his family as a foreign exchange student before enrolling in a university in Milwaukee, getting a quickie green card marriage, reinventing himself on the West Coast. In San Marino, California, he fits in uh, with the country club, country club crowd by claiming to be Christopher Chichester, a man with ties to British and German nobility. But then that sours when the son of his landlord, a young IT guy named John Sohus, and his wife Linda abruptly disappear. A lot of evidence led back to Christopher Chichester, who quickly escapes with the couple's truck. Back on the East Coast, Christopher would reinvent himself yet again as Christopher Crow, a sometime film producer uh, or, you know, TV producer who held at least three jobs in banking. He was fired from one job after the company discovered the social security number he gave them actually belonged to convicted serial killer David Berkowitz, managed to secure two other highly paid jobs before the discovery of a corpse thought to be Sohus in California led to police to begin looking for Christopher Crow in connection with the murder. Then after four mysterious lost years, moves on to his final iteration in the city that never sleeps. Clark Rockefeller, member of the illustrious Rockefeller family. Many artists, producers, gallerists, uh, lawyers would be taken in completely by the eccentric, wealthy man, including a financially brilliant woman named Sandra Boss, who marries Clark in 1995. Despite his apparent connection to one of the wealthiest families in America, Clark lived a lavish lifestyle completely funded by his wife's income. He needed her money to expand his art collection, buy antique cars, wear hand-tailored suits, because he didn't actually have any money of his own. Though he was fond of telling his neighbors that he sold a business in Canada for a billion dollars, Rockefeller never held a steady job and got a paycheck during his marriage to Sandra. Uh, finally, having enough of her lying husband, Sandra, files for divorce in the winter of 2007, 2008. Gerhard Schreider uh, uh, goes away for $800,000 and a chance to avoid uh, anyone working for the court, looking too hard into his real identity. But to get that deal, he has to agree to only three visitations a year with his daughter, after uh, one of those first court orders, uh, court supervised visits, Gerhard writer manages to shake off the social social worker and abducts his daughter. Uh, luckily, the FBI manages to capture him after almost a week long manhunt, and his daughter is unharmed. Then, shortly after the kidnapping trial, police began building a case for him uh, for the murder against him for the murder of Jonathan Sohas. In 2013, Christian Gerhardt's writer given a life sentence in prison essentially, uh, for murder, proving that not even a man with an incredible gift for deception like Gerhard writer can always escape the truth forever, but is his story over? Because he could get re- released on parole in December of 2029, and he'll be 68. Will he have enough time to pull off one last big con? Boston crime boss Whitey Bulger uh, still had the energy to run all sorts of rackets in his 60s. He lived on the lam invading authorities for over 15 years, still armed to the teeth when he was captured in his 80s. I think American televangelist Kenneth Copeland's crooked as fuck and running a con on his congregation, and he's currently 85. Still seems to have a lot of energy. Recent suck subject, sexual predator Peter Nygaard, he was still drugging and raping women and girls on a regular basis while running a company and making hundreds of millions of dollars a year while partying and jet-setting all around the world all throughout his 70s. And Christian seems healthy. He might still yet find a few people to prey on, find himself a member of some private clubs once more, dining on those cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches. It'll be simply splendid, darling. I uh, never really got to live the life of the Chilean sea captain, Chip Smith. I think his name was, uh, and I must love. It'll be grand. It'll be a re- real Peach Melba kind of con. But uh, will Christian get paroled in 2029 if he still can't admit who he actually is and stop pretending to be anyone other than Christian Gerhardt's rider? his refusal to back down from a bullshit story, right, what kept his old fake lives going might just keep him from living out a new one. Time now for today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time, suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Christian Carl Gerhardt Schreider went by many names. His most committed aliases being Christopher Chichester, Christopher Crowe, and ultimately Clark Rockefeller. To some, he was a film student. To others, a movie producer. A banker, someone who worked on third world poverty, or had a defense contract with U.S. military, or some uh, type of billion-dollar Canadian space company founder, CEO, something like that. The man has spend a seemingly infinite number of stories about his past, but didn't always pick the best backstories. What would really alert his father-in-law, and then his soon-to-be ex-wife, to the fact that he was truly not who he said he was, was his claim that his mom was former child star Ann Carter, and that she was dead. But Wikipedia revealed she was very much alive, and well in 2008, and never had a kid named Clark. Wikipedia brought him down. Number two, Clark Rockefeller, uh, Christian Carl Gerhard Schreider, abducted his daughter, Ray, aka Snooks, on July 27, 2008. After almost a week of frenzied searching, the FBI finally found him in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, claiming that he was one more fake person Chip Smith, Chilean sea captain. Yet another fake life. This one he only got to live out for a few days. Number three, Christian Carl Gerhard Schreider was convicted of killing John Sohas back in 1985 back when Christian uh, was living as Christopher Chichester and staying at the guest house of Dede Sohus in San Marino, California. John Sohus and his wife Linda went missing after telling friends and family they'd gotten some kind of secret job with the government. They disappeared. And shortly after the time of their disappearance, Christopher Chichester is spotted borrowing a chainsaw from a neighbor, having a dug up backyard, and he tried selling a bloody rug to a friend. Uh, Gerhardt's rider even started driving John's truck. Finally, on April 10th, 2013, Gerhard Schreider is convicted by an LA jury of John's first degree murder and sentenced to 27 years to life. Sadly, Linda or her remains have yet to be located. Number four, the longest lasting and most infamous identity of Christian Gerhard Schreider would be that of Clark Rockefeller. Christian claimed he was a relative of the oil magnate uh, John D. Rockefeller. And because certain crowds still love the Rockefellers and because he could talk the talk of the upper crust, he ran the scam for over a decade. He's able to live the life of a real Thurston Howell III, just like he dreamt of doing as a teen. As he sits in prison today, I gotta wonder if he thinks that decade was worth the punishment that came after it. And number five, new info, more evidence that Gerhardt's writer killed Linda Sohus. Over the final years of her mother-in-law, Didi Dee Dee Sohus's life, as the alcoholic's health declined, Didi Dee Dee became dependent on a couple that one Christopher Chichester had introduced her to before he vanished, Dawn and Linda Weatherby. Nearing death, and at Linda Weatherby's behest, Dee, Dee sold her home, bought a mobile home where the Weatherby's operated a trailer business. When the home was sold, there was a loan made to Linda Weatherby for $40,000. And Dee, Dee made Linda the executor in charge of all her personal affairs. Linda got all that Dee, Dee had left when she died in 1988. And then years later, on her deathbed, Linda Weatherby made an interesting confession. She said that Christopher Chichester had killed Dee Dee's son John and John's wife Linda as part of some crazy financial scam that she was also involved in. She wanted to get that off her conscience before she died. Too bad her confession was not enough to convict Christian for another murder and keep him in prison for sure until he dies. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The many lives of con man Clark Rockefeller has been sucked. I hope you found it simply splendid, darling. I hope you found it grand, love, an earful of peach melba. Uh, Thank you to the uh, team here for uh, making this episode possible again. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Logan Keith for directing, producing today. Uh, Thanks also to our new mystery producer. I'll be announcing in a few weeks. Uh, Thanks to Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Art Warlock, Logan Keith, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run our socials. Thanks again to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week. Thanks to the All seen Eyes, moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over at the Time Suck Reddit thread. Uh, Yeah, thanks to uh, uh, everyone keeping all this stuff active. And the Bad Magic subreddit as well. Next week on Time Suck, we stick with the theme of deceit and murder with the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. You may have heard about it from the many documentaries and the Hulu TV adaptation, that were produced after Gypsy and her boyfriend, Nicholas, murdered Gypsy's mother, Didi in June of 2015. The shocking crime was all the more shocking because neighbors, friends, and fans worldwide had followed Gypsy in the news for years, thinking that she was a sick little girl with a kind, devoted mother. It seemed that Gypsy had, uh, you know, possibly the worst medical luck with diagnoses of uh, muscular dystrophy, asthma, allergies, brain damage, and more. But thank God she had a wonderful mother who was an angelic caregiver. But that wasn't really the case. Gypsy, it turned out, had not truly been sick. Didi, who was thought to have had uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, had fabricated the whole thing to keep her daughter under her control through physical and psychological abuse. She also profited off the fake illness through charity trips, donations, even got a house, the house they moved into in 2008, provided by Habitat for Humanity. Over the years, Gypsy slowly realized that her mom was telling her, uh, what her mom was telling her about her illnesses was not true. She didn't need a wheelchair. She could walk on her own. Her hair wasn't falling out due to medications, like her mom said. She wasn't even the age her mom said she was. She was well into her 20s now. What the fuck is going on? With the help of her internet boyfriend, Gypsy develops a brutal plan to get free all of this case's insanity next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on to this week's, head over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Let's start with some laughs. Let's go with a message from a a meat sack who's a real dick. Uh, Richie writes, (laughs) Hi, Dan and fam. I've been a listener for a few years now. You guys have kept me entertained and educated on many tedious and traffic-filled commutes. Well, thank you. I've always thought about writing in, but never felt uh, the timing was right until I opened up my news feed and saw this article. It's a twist on the classic Florida man, insert something strange here, tagline. However, in this case, I offer up my own state of Louisiana. The title of the brief article is Louisiana man caught with sharks, meth, in Terrebonne Parish and a subtitle of, he threw a shark overboard during the investigation. I could not have been more proud. But now for the real reason I've always wanted to write in, I appreciate the fact that in any story you tell with a person named Richard, God, did did today's story finally not have Richard in it? You always take the time to rub out a few dick jokes, pun intended. I look forward to it, in fact. Well, brother, my name is Richard Fitz. (laughs) Not only that, my dad's name is Richard Fitz. So my parents chose to set me up for a life of a thousand different plays on the name Dick Fitz needless to say i go by richie thanks for being awesome dan uh um (laughs) yeah thanks for being awesome uh i don't know why i started to add something else well thank you richie uh and thank you uh thank you dick fits that is a rough one dick almost fits dick never fits little dick always fits dick shit fits that might be my favorite dick shit fits well if it isn't mr shit fits dick shit fits uh i think your parents made the right call right it's a fun name probably gave you a great sense of humor uh, next up marvelous meets at Kyle last name redacted has some love to share for a wonderful man Kyle writes. Hello, grandmaster of all things that suck fair warning This message comes spring loaded with plenty of pollen and freshly chopped onions. So proceed with care I'm a longtime listener and have often preached the ways of the suck to those close to me Most of them ignore my ramblings, but one person who took note was my granddad He had been suffering with a brain tumor in which he had been having treatment and to pass the time He would listen to time suck if you notice the use of past tense in the previous sentence, then well done, you have a keen eye. Unfortunately, my grandfather passed away surrounded by the ones he loved recently. We, bound, we bonded over a lot of things, uh, but later in his journey in this realm, time suck was the main thing. It hurts like hell that this has happened, but one of the last things he told me was that when he gets to meet Lucifina, he will twist on her titties until she promises to watch over me. <laughs> he then finished the sentence by telling me that he loved me and that he is so proud of me. Has the pollen got you yet? If you read this on an episode, I hope that all fellow Meat Sacks take this as a little reminder to hug the ones you love a little tighter. If not, then this will remain a personal message between you and I and the rest of the Bad Magic team on how some of my grandfather's final words were time suck related. The podcast made this treatment something to look forward to and on his behalf, I will never be able to express enough gratitude to you. I'll make sure my grandfather gives you a big three out of five stars and the big Yelp above the clouds. Thank you. P.S. Please only use my first name if shared with our wonderful community. Well, only your first name was used, Kyle. I did not tell anyone that your last name is Rockefeller. Kyle Rockefeller. Uh, sounds like you had a wonderful grandpa. What a beautiful thing. Uh, I hope he did not have to twist Lucifina's titties to get her to protect you. I hope your grandpa is now exploring other parts of Nimrod's vast realm, getting into all kinds of fun shenanigans. And hopefully some of them do involve Lucifina. And I hope he stops by from time to time to let you know, uh, you know that, he's, uh, that he's still around. Thanks for sharing a tiny little look into a, a great guy's life with us. Uh, Much appreciated. Now a little update on the Gerald and Charlene Gallego suck. Kind of a Stockton, California update uh, from a very funny sack guy Green. If you don't recall, uh, yeah, I was uh, a little harsh in my description based on what I saw in sources of Stockton. And Guy writes, "Even as a child, I knew that town was horrible. I could feel it. And driving through there was absolute nothing. uh, And driving through there, there was absolutely nothing that looked at all nice." The statistics you relayed confirmed every impression I've ever had of that place. As a young teen, I stayed a month of uh, one sweltering summer with an uncle there. I thought maybe one of his neighbors had a big dog or three until they uh, that they never cleaned up after until I walked the four blocks to, to the neighborhood convenience slash liquor store and was enveloped by the stench of dog shit the entire walk and the entire visit. The neighbors I met during that visit were about what you'd expect from folks who live in a place that solidly smells like dog shit, as were my uncle and his family. At 21, when I found myself in the California Conservation Corps, or Corps, the centers in Stockton and Riverside were the ones we desperately hoped not to get assigned to. Rumors abounded of Corps members getting stabbed and otherwise assaulted, sometimes because they just cast their checks at the same predatory places that also offer payday loans, sometimes just because. A few years later, I had a summer job hauling tomatoes in the Sacramento Valley, and hearing that my load was going to Stockton was always a gut punch. Traffic there is horrendous. And the route to the cannery goes to the city center, where day or night someone wearing gang colors and or spun out on crack and or suffering from unmedicated schizophrenia was guaranteed to step into the street right in front of my 40-ton rig. Once I ran out of fuel two blocks from the entrance to the cannery, about 20 yards past the liquor store, that seemed to be the social hub for the neighborhood. It's worth noting here that tomato canneries stink like rotten vagina, but at least it was a change from dog shit. It wasn't three minutes before a very fit, uh, fit-looking young man in a wife beater and blue bandana began riding laps around my truck on a lowrider bike. I honestly don't know what would, have happened, what would have happened if there hadn't been another guy from my outfit four minutes behind me, and it helped that he was big, buffed, and sported a monobrow that made him look enraged all the time, even though he was one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. We siphoned a couple gallons from his tank onto my lunch, into my lunch cooler, and I went on from there. I really doubt I could have talked my way into a better outcome. My family and I just drove through Stockton yesterday, returning from our vacation to the, green, uh, to the great green north. My opinion about the place remains the same after all this time. The city should be evacuated. The freeways left to function, but fenced off, save for one gas and shopping note. An upscaled pilot or loves should suffice. Then salvage whatever materials and components that are worthwhile and let nature reclaim the place. It's simple and would solve many problems on many levels. Much greater cities have been abandoned and left to ruin. Why not Stockton? When archaeological interest is the best it could possibly aspire to. <laughs> uh, guy, that one really cracked me up. Uh, the sarcastic satire. So thick. Love it. Uh, and now we're going to move on to a beautiful message from a sweet sucker, Jesse Murray, who writes, Hey, suck master Bojangles handler and best Tammy Wynette karaoke singer runner up. Uh long time sucker, first time updater, love literally everything you guys do. Three out of five would not change a thing. I'm a long time fan, still waiting to pick up my squirrel door, uh, from the breeder, uh, but was only acquainted with the suck through my brother-in-law. Allergy warning time. A little over two years ago, my brother-in-law, Chris, passed away unexpectedly while working in the frontline medical field during the peak of COVID. Though I never got the chance to meet Chris in person, this dude was a certifiable suck subject. In his 38 years, he hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail, uh, traveled most of the U S and was a genius in his field. After Chris passed away and I was tasked with helping my wife and her family settle Chris's accounts, which through his repeated time suck bookmarks uh, led me to become a member of the cult of the curious. It was through you and time suck that I felt like I got to connect with a brother-in-law. I never met someone who fed on the same thirst for knowledge and shared the same sense of twisted humor as I have. Chris will finally be laid to rest in proper fashion in late August. As many of his friends dedicated a rest stop slash bench, on the uh, Appalachian Trail that will serve as his memorial. I wanted to say thank you to the Bad Magic team for bringing me and Chris together posthumously. Uh, Tell Chris thanks for the episodes, the hiking gear, and to let him know his sisters and his mom love and miss him very, very much. If uh, any of you suckers are ever on the Appalachian Trail and see a bench in West Virginia, take a rest, hum some Triple M, and remember Chris for me. Uh, That was very kind, Jesse. Uh, Thanks for sharing that message. And Chris, if you're listening, uh, thank you as well. Thanks for uh, you know posthumously uh, spreading the suck. Uh, thanks for being a great guy. Thanks for fighting on the front lines during the pandemic and making the ultimate sacrifice in your efforts to keep the rest of us safe. I uh, hope that bench gets a, a whole lot of use. So much butt action. If you get a chance to sit on it, maybe don't fart me, Sacks. Stand up and fart, then sit down. Or shove a sock up your ass. Then sit on the bench, show a little respect. Uh, I didn't know Chris, but I feel like he'd appreciate that. And now we will end on a real quick hitter of a message from silly-ass sucker, Jake Lingerfinger. Doubt that's his real name. Who writes, Better cider, hot a peanut butter. Wait, better cider, hot a peanut butter, pop a fish. Well played, Mr. Lingerfinger. Well played. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast has been recorded. Please do not pretend to be someone else this week. And then for the next 10 plus years, uh, you know, uh, avoid work and do shit like hang out in private clubs and dine on cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches. Just keep your regular old life. If it seems boring, liven it up by continuing to keep on sucking.
0: Bad Magic Productions.
1: Dear Journal, Today, August 5th, 2022, I, Clark Rockefeller, have taken a moment to wonder what my splendid ex-wife Sandra Boss is up to. As I sit here after a meal of uh, pigs in a blanket, all gratin potatoes and pudding and perhaps some green beans, I have to wonder what she and Snooks are up to. Oh, I bet she is uh, lavishly spending tens of millions of dollars and probably... Uh, Oh, while I avoid my bunk mate, uh, trying to penetrate my anus. Probably having splendid kind of grand peach melba type sex. That must be simply divine. On satin sheets, while I sit here in my prison bunk. Mm, Snooks must be uh, riding the fanciest cars and meeting the, the most uh, wonderfully entertaining type of people. While I talk mostly to uh, uh, Lojack and uh, his friend... Um, uh, <laughs> fuck fucking skinhead guy. I'm not sure uh, what I'm doing here, how I've messed up. I simply must get back to my my billion-dollar Canadian space company or something shit. This really sucks. This is not splendid, darling. Not a bit.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.